Hey everyone, Artie here. So today we're finally unlocking an episode that's gotten probably more requests to unlock than any other before it, which is our huge show from the end of last year called How Liberals Killed Masking. And we chose today to unlock it for a really specific reason, which is today, February 9th, is the one-year anniversary of the day, or really the couple of days, in February 2022, when a group of Democratic Party governors announced the end of most of the last remaining mask mandates. So the episode you're about to hear talks about the context that preceded that event, which we also talked about at length in the companion episode to this one, COVID Year 3. So if you've heard this one before, please send it to your friends. If you haven't, then consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod to be the first to hear episodes just like this. Patrons will see you in the patron feed on Monday to talk about the declaration of the end of the public health emergency, May 11th. And for everyone else, we will see you next week. The scarlet letter of this pandemic is the mask. It's inconvenient. It's annoying. And it reminds us that we're in the middle of a pandemic. We view our masks not only as a form of protection, but as a statement that we believe in science. And I think on both sides, it's ended up going beyond where the science should allow it to go. Doesn't the air just smell so much sweeter without our masks? Doesn't it feel brighter without the shadow of the virus darkening our every thought? We will rebuild our economy, reclaim our lives, and get back to normal. We'll laugh again, we'll know joy again, and we'll smile again. You know, and now, see one other smile. Look at the smiles on other people's faces. Better days are ahead. I promise you. Thank you so much for supporting the show. We could not do any of this without you. If you're listening to this and you're not a patron, support the show at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. You'll get access to our second weekly bonus episode and our entire back catalog of bonus episodes. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, order a copy of Health Communism from your local bookstore or request it at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So I'm still a little sick, so apologies in advance for my voice, but I'm really excited about today. This is the first ever episode with Abby and Jules on together. Hell yeah. <laughs> Woo! And with Jules <laughs> on her new mic, which sounds so great. Yes, and her ASMR arrow. Thank you, Thank you for, for making this possible. It's a very beautiful and elegant feeling. So yeah, an extra special thank you to the patrons this week. Yes. So last week, we released a sort of companion episode to the discussion we're going to have today, COVID Year 3, which was our annual recap of the year's events in what we call the sociological production of the end of the pandemic, which is, in other words, how the pandemic has been made to disappear, even as it's still very much an ongoing disaster. So the core of that episode was this. In September, Biden declared that the pandemic is over. And yet, as 2022 comes to an end, in the first week of December, 2,981 people died of COVID, according to the CDC. 
And since we recorded that episode, that figure has actually been updated to 3,115 deaths, which just to note, updates like this happen frequently now because as we talk about in COVID year three, data has become very poor and reporting is less and less frequent. And so we are now in both a narrative and informational vacuum when it comes to COVID. And according to the same data, 2,703 people died in the last week, the second week of December, a figure which may also be updated again in the future. So that's between like 400 and 450 people dying of COVID every day. Now, if deaths continue at that level over a long period of time, that would be about 160,000 deaths a year. But we're doing much worse than that, which according to the CDC in the last year, 255,361 people have died of COVID in the U.S. So that's a quarter of a million people, more than two and a half full incalculable losses, to borrow a phrase from the New York Times early on in the pandemic. And this is obviously not to mention the many other consequences of COVID, which among them are, you know, long COVID, as we've talked about at length recently, or for instance, the more than 10 million children who have been left without a caregiver because of COVID. Yeah. And as we mentioned in that episode, though, in in COVID year three, while we were researching that episode, it began to get so big that we really had to separate out part of it to be able to talk a little further back in time about how masking specifically came to be seen in mainstream terms as sort of, I don't know, I guess you would say now it's sort of viewed as viewed or or projected really as this unnecessary or even irrelevant component of (laughs) pandemic protections. In other words, how masking ended. Um, And here's the thing about that story, which is something that I don't think a lot of people realize it wasn't necessarily MAGA people who ended masking. It wasn't Republicans. It wasn't exclusively corporate interests who pushed this. Um, did those groups I just mentioned play a role? Absolutely. But if you look at the process of how people in power turned against mask mandates and how masking became at best looked at as sort of a nice thing to do for <laughs> others or at worst a marker of your own personal risk, like mm-hmm. a, a marker that your own personal risk is high. Um, in other words, like how it became so much a matter of personal responsibility. (laughs) Or, yeah, or that you yourself are sick and contagious. Right. That, um, you know, liberals in affluent neighborhoods will literally roll their eyes at you if they see you wearing a mask. Um, There's a very different culprit there than you might think. So what we're going to talk about today is who killed masking. Um, (laughs) And what I'm suggesting is, in reality, it was liberals, Democrats, if you prefer. Mm -hmm. Um, When we look at who ended masking, Liberals have their hands all over it. Um, I know that some people might not want to hear that, but if that person I'm talking about is you, (laughs) get ready to sit through our argument first, maybe uh, before you send me me the angry emails or or like tweet at me. Um, As usual, you can reach me at Matt Iglesias at (laughs) slowboring.com. But so um, I want to stress this from the top. And I know that there's like quite a bit of introduction here, but I think a lot of this has to be said. Um, there's a really specific reason we're talking about this now and a really specific reason this spun off as sort of its own thing from COVID year three. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is this, um, in recent weeks, uh, mass mandates are really a hot topic again, despite the fact that there's <laughs> practically no state or local officials that are actually in the process of trying to reinstate them right now. But in part because even the CDC's basically built-to-fail COVID community-level system (laughs) is hitting the high mark again in a lot of places, um, which triggers a masking recommendation. Um, There's been an outpouring of conversation 
over these again, over mask mandates again. And some of the biggest people saying, you know, fuck that, we're not ever doing that again are liberals, yeah. um, which we'll get to. So just to, to give an idea of where we are, here's a couple of just in, in, indicative pieces, I think. Um, Washington Post, December 7th. Um, this is where we are right now. So December 7th, 2020 to Washington Post. This is a, a piece called Face Masks May Return Amid Holiday Triple-Demic of COVID <laughs> Flu and RSV. Um, with a quote contained within, quote, with such a heavy burden of illness straining the healthcare system, it may be hard to believe that something as simple as a face mask could make a meaningful difference. Experts say a quality medical mask remains a highly effective line of defense. With all unquote. of the work we've done to undermine masking. <laughs> you might not believe it anymore. You might yeah. not, um, <laughs> you know, hear us out now that we're crying wolf, essentially. <laughs> Um, here's another quote from, uh, this one's from the New York times, also from December 7th quoting, uh, they talked to Bob Walker um, about God, attitudes classic. toward masking. <laughs> yeah. Um, <sighs> quote, the early days of what I do affects you and what you do affects me. There are very few people who still think that way, said Robert Walker, <laughs> the chair of the department of medicine at the university of California, San Francisco quote, it's a natural phenomenon to move from a communal point of view to this individual risk benefit <laughs> point of view. <laughs> so Thatcherism bullshit. is the virus. Bob, <laughs> you are full of shit. We're probably getting uh, where, we're, where we're going here, um, <laughs> which is, so how the fuck did we get here, right? How is it that a basic public health intervention became, in the words of Rochelle Walensky, the scarlet letter of the pandemic, even among many of the liberals who used to champion them? And I'm just going to, I'm going to spoil uh, one of the points we're going to be making from the top, which is that, Despite the fact that we have seen plenty of new COVID variants and, you know, continue to do so, the fundamental basis for how masks work and and why they work, I just want to kind of say this at the top, has not changed, actually. <laughs> no. Really um, important preface, actually. I'm really glad you brought this up, Artie. Whatever you want to believe about COVID-19, it has not upended basic principles of disease transmission or rendered useless a tool, the mask, that has been employed for literally centuries. Yeah. Also physics. Right. Like the virus didn't change size magically with the variant. <laughs> there is this persistent myth that I think is really fucking annoying. And I'm really glad we got it out of the way that, that you know, the virus has evolved to make masks irrelevant now. Now that, you know, Omicron is here, it's just so strong. The masks don't matter anymore. It's yeah. The biggest fucking line of <laughs> masks shit. work, but mandates don't. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Spoil, you're spoiling the end. I know, I'm, I'm sorry, kidding. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I think that is literally where we're going to end, probably. But anyway, um, so I think, you know, if we look at those quotes, for example, like the Bob Walker quote, right? What Bob Walker was trying to remember in that New York <laughs> Times quote is the phrase from early on in the pandemic that was all over the place. My mask protects you. Your mask protects me. Mm -hmm. It was true then. It's still true now. The reason universal masking works is equally simple, hasn't changed. Um, the more people that mask, the less COVID there is in the air, uh, meaning less infections. And I don't think anyone really wants to talk about this part of it, but the less COVID in the air, the more likely it is that if you do get infected, you're going to be starting from literally a point of having less virus in your system in the first place, which I'm sure can't fucking hurt in terms of the likelihood of a case becoming severe. Yeah. Can I pick on Bob Walker for a second? Yeah, go for <laughs> yes, it. Please. Jump in. Okay. I love this quote of his and, you know, I don't think I've ever heard it about like, <laughs> you know, it being a natural phenomenon to move from 
a, a more collective perspective to a more individualistic perspective. I just I would just like to flag right at the top of the show that what that means is when it seems possible that I might be at grave risk, <laughs> a collective position is desirable. Right. Years into a pandemic, when I have established, you know, when we have established like the parameters that will allow me to purchase, you know, more survival and protection from myself, that collective perspective is less important. Right. Fuck you, Bob. I hate totally. Him. Anyway, so I guess a couple last um, things of setup. We're going to try not to retread too much of what was already covered in COVID year three. I know that I like sprinkled throughout that and we'll talk more about this in in like the masking episode. But I think actually they ultimately ended up being relatively distinct with a lot of meaningful points of overlap. But I just want to be clear about uh, a couple of the big themes that were in COVID year three, if you haven't listened to that yet. Um, so we in that episode, we try to pretty methodically show a couple things, one of the one of which is that this never was a pandemic of the unvaccinated. That'll mm-hmm. be kind of important for this through line that we're going to go through here. And that sort of sense of vaccine only strategy asked the vaccines really to do too much to be literally the only line of defense against COVID. The ongoing fact of more than half of COVID deaths being breakthrough deaths mean we still need layered protections like masking. And then we also talk a lot about how one way masking works is not a thing that that's not that's not real and we'll talk about that some more today and you know finally just to note they could have been sending masks to everyone for like free this like this time. entire time yeah for years and for the last three years and like mandating use of the three of the, the free things that they were giving people but they haven't so like here we are um <laughs> so with so many people so thoroughly convinced uh mass mandates can't or shouldn't come back or we shouldn't even try here we are with how we got here. Um, so consider this a condensed form of the story. I've tried to highlight some of the biggest turning points, but many of the things I'm pointing to can be thought of as like signposts along the way of a broader social and political process. So uh, I want to start with 2020 first, just Rolling briefly. all the way back. Yeah. I think many of us remember 2020 well, um, but there are some parts of it that have definitely, I think, been buried in our collective imagination more than others. For example, while I think most of the time we reflect on 2020 and think of events like Trump's, you know, drink bleach ad lib or whatever, here's a, a couple of things we might forget. Um, one is that even before the vaccines, by spring and summer 2020, think tanks were on fire with big white papers on how to reopen the economy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually in 2020, a lot of the conversation was not like masking wasn't the big piece of political contention really i think i mean you know it was politically contentious but it paled in comparison to the idea of lockdowns which as we've said here on the show many times like never really happened in the way that they're portrayed in the u.s so that said um this year in january we actually did an episode called what would aei do where we actually looked back at some Mm -hmm. of those 2020 think tank plans and were dismayed i would say to find that they kind of paint a better picture of a response than what biden ended up doing yeah it was depressing um <laughs> but to stay on episode, though. yeah um but to stay on the let's call it um the worst person you know just made a great point thing in june of 2020 goldman sachs released a report arguing that a national mask mandate would positively affect the u.s's gdp <laughs> um here's a forbes Oof. headline from june 30th 2020 Quote, a national mass mandate could save the U.S. economy $1 trillion, Goldman Sachs says. Oh, that's this my is... favorite number. <laughs> <laughs> this is, um, this reminds me of something that friend of the show, Justin Feldman, has been pointing out for quite a long time, which is 
I, something's going on ideologically here to collapse mm. like any type of mitigation measure, like regardless of what it actually is. Right. To sort of shepherd any type of mitigation measure un- under the umbrella of lockdowns like and police state lockdown or something. Yeah, and it's it's particularly interesting with masking because like masking isn't commercially disruptive. And as you're like as you just said, you know, <laughs> Goldman Sachs is estimating that it's actually like perhaps economically productive. Um Yeah, we love GDP here. Yeah, but something there's some weird, I don't know what it is, but like there's a back end ideological connection that I think when people think of lockdowns and think of like you know, really, really disruptive, commercially disruptive mitigations. They also think of of masking, which is not really accurate. Well, yeah. I wonder as we move through this review of how we got to where we are today, one thing maybe to pay attention to is like, I think one of the common, you know, criticisms of Democrats in order to, you know, to sort of de-differentiate them from Republicans is like, well, but they're so neoliberal. They're so driven by corporate interests that actually you know, they make indistinguishable decisions from Republicans. But, you know, it's it's not just sort of neoliberal economic rationalization, right? There's this like ideological <laughs> impulse mm-hmm. here that has very little to do, well, it's not that has very little to do with economics, but isn't sort of economically rational in a Goldman Sachs sense. I um, can't believe <laughs> I'm allowed to say that sentence out loud, right? But this kind of tying... <laughs> of wearing a mask or a mask mandate, right, to lockdown, to policing or something like that. That's a very, you know, ideologically conservative position as well. So I've just sort of, you know, seen the way that, you know, there's more here than just accusing Democrats of being so um, economically obsessed that they don't care about people's lives. It's even, you know, there's that added um, frosting layer of uh, beautiful ideology. Yeah, they don't care about people's lives for ideological reasons. <laughs> it right. turns out, right? Exactly. exactly. But that exactly. goes way back, clearly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. totally. Um, health communism. Read it. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but, um, and that's definitely why uh, I wanted to start with just a couple of notes about 2020. Because again, we're, you know, we're mostly going to be talking about actually, I think, stuff that like the Biden administration and the press did in 2021. But some of these things for context, just to remember how different the world kind of was in 2020, like mm-hmm. this, for example, um, this is something that didn't enter, end up happening. But um, in April 2020, the U.S. Postal Service fully planned and then ultimately killed a program to send 650 million free masks to people nationwide. <sighs> That's April 2020. I, for, I had forgot um, about that. So honest. did I until I was, you know, going back and, and really thinking about it. Um so before this plan is killed, it gets far enough that it's actually drafted, like they actually drafted a full press release for it that would announce it. Mm-hmm. They never send it. They never do it. Um, the only reason we know this actually is because in September 2020, it came out in reporting about the USPS that they were going to do this. Another thing, just you know, like by November 2020, it's important to note that like COVID discourse, including among liberals, had fully gone off the rails. Um mm-hmm. Obviously, November 2020 also saw like the introduction of the Great Barrington Declaration um, people as like a whole thing. We've talked plenty about those clowns in in the past. Um, And I'm sure that's certainly a part of a component of the story, but we don't need to like dwell on them at the moment in this uh, context. But, you know, whatever, you you know, and love it. It's like the idea that you can focus on Great Barrington Declaration. They say, like, you can focus only on the vulnerable at the expense of society wide interventions against a society level threat. And it'll be fine. And it'll be fine. And this is, you know, at the time they're like looked at as the clowns that they are by a lot of the liberal establishment. And I think 
you know, by now, as we've talked about and written about, even like it's it's basically now what like the Biden administration is doing is mm-hmm. is their plan. Anyway, some more yeah, context. How to though. hide a plague. Read it. Right. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Read it in a couple of years when it comes out. <laughs> yeah. Um Fourth, forthcoming. November 20th, 2020, just ahead of Thanksgiving in the U.S., the New York Times runs this opinion piece, which um, some of you may remember. I traced my COVID-19 bubble and it's enormous. Um, (laughs) I remember this. I forgot about this. The author, um, trying to convince himself it's safe to do Thanksgiving, uh, walks us through how he has, you know, kids in his household. They're still going to school, gym classes. So he sees he like tries to trace how big his exposure network is for COVID writing quote. Once I had counted everyone, I realized that visiting my parents for Thanksgiving would be like asking them to sit down to dinner with more than 100 people. Um, and so of course the piece concludes with him deciding that they're going to do it. Um, (laughs) I remember at the time being like so frustrated that he had basically gathered evidence as to why he should not go to dinner and did exactly the opposite. Right. It's so funny to just think about how novel that was. You well, know? for the time. Yeah. Sort of, no, yeah. I mean, like, I think this was it the wasn't first the time. only thing that was like that. But it was like, I'm just trying to I'm, I'm trying to, you know, this is the this is the temperature of the time or something. You know what I mean? That was like the vibe mm-hmm. among a lot of liberals, I think, was like, well, you know, but it's safe for us. I mean, I remember even summer 2020, there was that whole like people were there was that whole thing about like when rapid tests were still really expensive and scarce, like people taking rapid tests before going into like elite parties or whatever mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. Uh, in the Hamptons. rich parties in the Hamptons and, and stuff like that, whatever. Well, and there was so, also the whole debate during the George Floyd uprising about like the mm-hmm. masking and the kind of role that the masking was playing in, in perpetuating, you know, evading police capture and things like that. And yeah, and Which also, definitely you turned know, a lot of carceral liberals against uh, the oh, whole yeah. conceit. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, I feel like the the conversation that I had recently with Dan Berger um, about his piece for Petrie Flom, which is called the Pandemic Prison. Yeah, I, we really we got into that, and I really feel like in a lot of ways that's that's kind of the grounding of a lot of where some of the like irreverence for masking in liberals starts to be seated. Mm-hmm. By early November, we get preliminary phase three data out from the Pfizer vaccine trials promising 91.3% efficacy in preventing symptomatic infection. That part's really important, the symptomatic infection part. Uh, Remember this because it'll like this will come up um, really throughout, I think. Uh, This is when also a lot of people start running with this as a through line that vaccines are going to stop transmission and new cases basically like dead in their tracks um, versus what we all know by now, obviously, that they, they don't do that. Another thing is that, um, of course, Biden wins the election, gets ready to come into office shortly after one Biden advisor publicly advocates for a couple of weeks shutdown to quash COVID spread, um, which was like still a relatively, you know, approachable <laughs> common sentiment at the time even the minneapolis fed like there was a a whole thing coming out of the minneapolis fed saying that we should do that um quickly after this biden advisor says that biden makes sure to promptly say quote i'm not going to shut down the economy i'm going to shut down the virus (laughs) and most importantly uh one particular sort of campaign pledge from like post the election and like pre-inauguration uh that biden makes is an announcement he makes on december 3rd Um, where Biden asks the American people for 100 days of masking 
telling CNN's Jake Tapper, uh, here's just a quote, um, just 100 days to mask, not forever, 100 days. And I think we'll see a significant reduction in COVID. It is important that we, in fact, uh, the president and the vice president, we set the, the, you know, the, 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 the pattern by wearing masks. Yeah. But beyond that, where the federal government has authority, I'm going to issue a standing order that in federal buildings you have to be masked and in transportation, interstate transportation, you must be masked in airplanes and buses, et cetera. And I think my inclination, Jake, is on the first day I'm inaugurated to say I'm going to ask the public for 100 days to mask. Just 100 days to mask. Not forever, 100 days to drive down the numbers considerably. It's the um, sallow strategy. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> 120 um, days of masking. Well, that's actually a little bit closer to what they did because um, I was going to say this is almost exactly what they did. The 100 days of masking, a campaign promise that they actually kept, if you will, Um, because so Biden is sworn in as president on January 20th, 2021. Um, On May 13th, 2021, the CDC issues a dramatic reduction in masking recommendations which, as we'll discuss in just a second, um, results in most states that still have statewide mask mandates dropping them, many of which never actually return, like ever. So that's um, like the one promise they kept. Right. Only so, for 100 be- days. Well, because for for if you're quick on your feet with arithmetic, you will know by now that uh, between January 20th and May 13th is about 113 days. Um, so they actually went just above. That's why I said, yeah, it's like it's closer to 120 days of solo. Um, <laughs> so, uh, we'll, I mean, we'll return to this in a second. But yeah, that that announcement I'm talking about is May 13th. CDC says no longer, no longer does it recommend masking specifically for vaccinated people in indoor or outdoor settings. But before we get deeper into that change and what it meant, um, I want to say a few things about those 113 days the period between where biden is inaugurated and when masking basically ends because the cdc didn't just drop recommendations overnight i mean they they did as we'll show in a second like it was abrupt and surprising to most people um as we'll see it it totally caught basically everybody off guard but um as we've shown in other instances like there was a lot of ideological groundwork that was already laid down well before that may 13th announcement um as I mentioned earlier, there's a wave of amazingly over-optimistic vibes around the vaccine's ability to prevent cases and transmission. Here is, for example, March 30th, 2021, um, Walensky appearing on the Rachel Maddow show on MSNBC um, says, quote, our data from the CDC today suggests that vaccinated people do not carry the virus, don't get sick, and that it's not just in the clinical trials, but it's also in real world data. Mm. See, this is the opportunity that we squandered. This is how good the vaccines worked when layered when with masks, right? Because these were the conditions that the yeah. vaccines were tested under, which was like not universal masking, right? Because some people did not follow the guidelines. Yes, some people wore their masks improperly, yeah. right? Like, but yeah, with masking combined with the vaccines, we saw like a abnormal level of protection because masking Mm -hmm. is effective like at just generally reducing again the amount of virus that's in the air which ultimately is the number one thing that you have to do if you want to stop people from getting sick like everyone keeps like trying to look for like the the 15th step past Mm. reducing the amount of virus in the air where we just have to just like focus (laughs) on thing number one which is like how much virus is in the room 
get it out? Like, how can we get it down? How can we eliminate it? Is that removing people? Is that removing and cleaning the air? Is that making a barrier so less comes out? Like, there you go. This is this is like the, the actual problem. And no one is focusing on the actual problem anymore. It's so annoying. Yeah, because it's all, it's all become vibes by now. Yeah, absolutely. But I was just going to say, too, like, talk about missed opportunities, because also that's like the largest possible empirical data set that you could ever imagine for thinking about a question like this, right? Like that, you know, several months worth of time, how many hundreds of millions of people, right? Like, it's just, I mean, all of the evidence, like talk about evidence that, you know, I don't know, otherwise we might only dream of for being able to understand something, but how quaint and impossible it feels now to even think of that as evidence since we've entered the vibes era. (laughs) Such a good point, Jules. The one thing that I'd add to all this is just um, the thing that we have said frequently, but not uh, not, I think, recently, which is that if you're, for example, worried about um, ongoing vaccine efficacy against mm-hmm. new variants, for example, a really good way to improve vaccine efficacy is masking, mm-hmm. frankly, right. like adding layered protections. And so, because every time someone's infected, every time like a virus molecule is near another virus molecule, you have an opportunity for mutation, mm-hmm. recombination. That is how variants emerge, right? So like reducing the amount of virus in the air is what we need to reduce the variant development. But everybody's like, oh, we have to be ready for the next variant. And nobody's fucking reducing the amount of virus, which is what creates the variants in the first place. Just to say that for context. Mm-hmm. So obviously the sentiment that the vaccines provided like sterilizing immunity essentially wasn't totally universally um, shared and, you know, or wasn't like unqualified sometimes when it was said. Um, I won't claim that. But what I will say is that very early on, um, when the vaccine is really just starting to roll out at the population level, we see this chorus of people saying that basically to point to the existence of transmission and cases in vaccinated people is akin to spreading like anti-vax propaganda. Um, so here's one piece from the Atlantic January 27th, um, which was headlined vaccinated people are going to hug each other. <laughs> um, the subheader of which was the vaccines are phenomenal belaboring their imperfections and telling people who receive them never to let down their guard carries its own risks. Um, So I just want to read one paragraph from this to give you the gist. Uh, Quote, when Americans began receiving coronavirus vaccines last month, people started fantasizing about the first things they do when the pandemic ends. Go back to work, visit family, work. work (laughs) The first thing. Go back to work. Shut Visit up, family, fantasy. hug friends, <laughs> fantasizing um, about going back to work oh, yeah. every day. <laughs> um, but the public discussion soon shifted. One news article after another warned about everything that could go wrong. Protection isn't immediate. Vaccinated people can still transmit the virus. Vaccinated people might get mild infections that could become chronic, which interestingly is an early diss against long COVID people. Um, I'll read that again. Vaccinated people might get mild infections that could become chronic is something that is listed as like being a vaccine naysayer here. Yep. Um, uh, their list continues. Vaccines might not work as well against new coronavirus variants. One headline admonished quote, COVID-19 vaccine doesn't mean you can party like it's 1999. Can vaccinated people at least hang out with one another? Nope. Masks and distancing are still required. This is still the article. <laughs> 
Um, bottom line, another article concluded ominously, you will need to wear a face mask after you're vaccinated until COVID-19 cases become nearly non-existent. Okay. Unquote. Here's my issue with this. Yep. The characterization of all these things that could go wrong, <laughs> like protection isn't immediate. Vaccinated people can still transmit the virus. Like you might get a breakthrough infection that could become chronic. That's not talking about that as like something that could go wrong makes it sound like these are incredibly rare and, you know, almost like esoteric uh, risks that simply don't apply to the majority of people. But actually, these are just basic facts about the vaccines. These are the basic parameters that people need to know in order to be able to ride the Biden vibes train and like assess their personal risk in the context of, of, you know, basically unlimited viral transmission. So that, I don't know, that just kind of like pisses me off because it's such a, it's such a common feature of a lot of this like liberal discourse that people do Mm. not like these liberal commentators do not trust the public at all with health information. And I think it's very telling that they treat any type of like nuanced health communication Mm. as if it's just like simply too dangerous um, to allow the public to hear. Yeah, Yeah, it's super patronizing. I hate it. Well, yeah, these articles are so condescending. They talk to the reader as if we're the dumbest people who have ever (laughs) lived, which, you know, but like, it's so interesting, right? Because there's that ostensible motive that seems genuine, like genuinely bad, but like genuine, right? That's like, well, we don't want to have complicated messaging, but it's incredible how early these ideological seeds are being sown tactically to disqualify yep. mm-hmm, any mm-hmm. critical response to public health messaging as irrational, right? Yeah. And like that yeah. tying of it to anti-vax, you know, is just so, so sinister. I mean, so sinister, right? It's just like so early on. It's like before, you know, just like right from this just feels very ground floor, like day one, day zero, right? We've got to start making those people out to be irrational so that they're very basic, normal, um, not even criticisms, right? But like you're saying, Abby, just like the basic questions you would raise about public health efficacy and how vaccines work and how disease spreads like stuff they can see in front of them yeah Yeah. stuff like breakthrough cases stuff that people experience yes right disqualifying that as unreal yeah well and the thing is too is like you know in, in some capacity you could say like okay so the when you get vaccinated you you're not immediately protected right that that there's a kind of lag time these you could say like, oh, that's kind of like a pool rule or something. But if it's not, it's like saying that it's not like saying, oh, don't run on the pool deck. It's like saying the pool is eight feet deep. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's six feet deep in that corner. <laughs> right. And it's, it's four just feet a fact deep in that corner. It's just a it's not saying fact. it's not saying don't jump in the four foot part because you'll break your neck. Mm. It's just saying this part's four feet. Like, and that's really what a lot of these early, like, breakthrough cases Mm. are not about vaccine hesitancy. It's about saying this part's fucking six feet deep. And, you know, and Mm -hmm. and I think, Artie, as you were just saying, like, the kind of setting this up is like, if you acknowledge the reality in front of you, then you're being anti-vax was just, 
it, it's clearly been um, like a, a major thread that that just has like completely gotten out of control. Yeah. Well, it's fucking libs. You can tell that libs mm. think that they have a monopoly on being rational on understanding you know the scientific process and like trusting <laughs> science and whatever and it's just so ludicrous yeah well it's that yeah. political identification of liberalism or like being a liberal with scientificity right so it's yeah. like combine infusing science and objectivity with this like political affector you know relationship to politics that's a, actually emotional and ideological right and then it yeah. leads to that kind of smug condescension and just like a degree of certainty that is so obviously weaponized right but has the perfect alibi because it can you know shrug away and also cry the biggest crocodile tears that have ever been cried if anyone <laughs> raises a very real objective um, point in relation yeah. to it the, the last thing I would add on on this before we move back into the timeline is just that I'm it it is occurring to me also that one of the big things that um, this sort of list does that I think I've seen repeated a lot in uh, you know a lot of because you know this is I don't mean to pick on this one piece there's like so many examples of of basically almost exactly this argument but this happens to be a pretty good one at a specific time right <laughs> but the um, I think a big conflation is happening here between again, these sort of, as Abby said, basic facts about how the vaccines are working things again, that people are experiencing things like, as I noted in that list, long COVID and there, there's a, a conflation between again, those basic facts with like um, what, what they're actually saying is they're worried about people's sentiment towards yeah. the vaccine. Uh, sorry. Incorporating those facts into their sentiment about the vaccine and that somehow people will not sort of realize like, okay, maybe actually there is a, a pretty good role for the mask or something yes. like that. There was or kind for of like a, a paid leave or whatever. Yeah, like if, the, um, if but, it's not perfect, people won't love it as much and they this, won't take it kind of fallacy. Yeah. And just assuming that people will just like it, it's, I mean, it, it is literally centering. I mean, I know we use the word vibes a lot already, but like it's centering the vibes. On this point, okay, I don't want to like skip us ahead too far, but it's interesting. Like now that you're saying this, this is the first time, well, maybe not the first time, but the first time probably this year that I'm having this thought, which is that the like masking, this kind of like smug, like liberal you know, projection of all this certainty, you know, about the vaccines, which I mean, is already this early, you know, not really warranted within, you know, six months of, you know, January 2021 is going to become pretty fucking obvious that, you know, yep. it's it's unwarranted. But it's interesting the role that like Matt, like the masking component like plays in this whole ideological project, because I remember in like I'm going to guess it was the spring of 2021. Like, we're probably going to get there in the timeline. But I remember people like, you know, Monica Gandhi, in particular, mm. all of our faves saying that, <laughs> you know, if you require people still to mask or tell people that they still should mask, they are not going to believe that the vaccines work right. and they are not going to get vaccinated, which I remember thinking at the time I was like, well, that's a, a completely novel and untested theory of health behavior. Like, <laughs> it'd be great if you had literally any data or any supporting evidence at all to back that up. Of course, it's that the, was 
the yeah. babysitting theory of yeah yeah of public like, health of like, course that evidence was never never provided but like you don't you wouldn't want to go to bed early yeah <laughs> Sorry. but you know like maybe this is like the uh this is like the ideological line is like people have this or you know people like monica gandhi and like andrew cuomo have this idea that people like oh it would be the worst thing in the world if people got the mm. wrong idea about the vaccines yeah. and it's like no it would be the worst thing in the world if like a pandemic killed over a million people <laughs> in the country yeah, actually. absolutely mm. and this is such a liberal vibe i feel like i have such perspective i mean we're only like 20 minutes in or not even and i feel like i have 45. such whatever <laughs> i feel like i have such perspective unless three years at a level of clarity that I have not before. And I'm thinking back to the conversation that I had with Deshaun Harrison about their book, Belly of the Beast. And they were talking about the uh, Obama era war on obesity and Mm. how it was really all into this kind of like nudge behavioralism where the the framework of approaching, um, you know, medicalizing quote unquote obesity as this demographic threat to America, right? That was going to be solved through these very like personal responsibilities, sort of healthy even eating, healthy living, mm-hmm. like movement, wellness, um, gratitude, whatever. That it, it just as a kind of framework, fundamentally, it, it just has so many echoes to what we saw with masking, right? Where it's just completely focused on the kind of liberal vibe of like, we know better. We've got to trick people into doing what's good for them, like a soda ban, because they don't know what's good for themselves. And I feel just like, of course, we saw a pandemic of the unvaccinated emerge, right? That we're seeing the groundwork for it right here in this mm-hmm. moment of them being like, you can't even say mention the, the parameters of the vaccine without, you know, inspiring a spark of anti-vaccine sentiment. Like it's a kind of contagion that people can't keep themselves away from. Yeah. Um, Meanwhile, no one gave a shit about mounting anti-vax sentiment in this country over the <laughs> over the previous decade. Yeah. So so back to the timeline, I just want to remind everyone um, for those, those uh, keeping track at home, we're still in January 2021 at this point, super early, um, like vaccine is like just rolling out and this discourse is already happening. Um, also in January 2021, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, anyone fucking remember that guy, makes um, the following statement a, a priority in his annual state of the state address. Quote, we simply cannot stay closed until the vaccine hits critical mass. The cost is too high. We will have nothing left to open. We must reopen the economy, but we must do it smartly and safely. One of the things he's talking about is at this point, the vaccine rollout is just starting. Um, In New York, the context Cuomo is talking about is, for instance, like the Javits Center has gone from Hillary's uh, metaphorically unbroken glass ceiling to a mass vaccination <laughs> clinic. People are starting to get the shots, but it's being rationed by population type, starting with age and moving on to what job you have, actually. Mm-hmm. By February, Cuomo announces that indoor dining will resume in New York City by Valentine's Day, while at the very same time calling demands to add restaurant workers to the vaccination priority roles, quote, cheap and insincere. Um, so find that interesting. <laughs> Disgusting. Oh my God. Um, in February, California's Democratic governor, Gavin Newsom, also lifts stay at home orders. Um, and while all of this is happening, the U.S. passes 500,000 deaths uh, from COVID for the first time. Woof. Anyway, as promised, this is more of an overview, but a couple of other indicative pieces from Biden's first 100 days. 
um, January 28th, 2021, um, who shall appear but Vinay Prasad, uh, op-ed and med page today, headline tribalism and virtue signaling and post-COVID vax messaging Ugh. about what you would think it's about, which is all the stuff that you guys were just talking about. Um, I just made ago. the woozy emoji face like in real life. <laughs> <laughs> Um, then I follows this up with an opinion piece for stat news, February 20th, quote, new CDC school opening guidelines fail to follow the science. Um, same deal. Mm. Um, Prasad is a total crank, obviously. So let's hear that from a more mainstream source. Uh, March 4th, 2021, wall street journal editorial board writing the perpetual COVID crisis. The lockdown <sighs> lobby persists despite the vaccine rollout. Um, <sighs> I remember that one. I'm actually going to read a snippet from this. Um, and I want to preface this by saying, you know, again, we're talking about liberals here mostly. Uh, obviously, the Wall Street Journal is a conservative outlet, but like a lot of Democrats read it and mm-hmm. like eat the shit up, especially corporate Democrats. So like, you know, this is part of absolutely the same like discourse um, that they're participating in at the time. Um, so uh, here, here's the quote from that piece. Politicians created a box canyon with lockdowns last spring that were initially intended to flatten the curve. But then every time governors loosened restrictions and cases ticked up, Democrats would demand lockdowns. Not that lockdowns, in parentheses, or mass mandates, much Mm. helped California or New York, which experienced bigger surges this winter than Florida did with neither. Well, just wait. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, seriously. Vaccines were, they continue, vaccines were supposed to enable Americans more or less to get back to their before COVID lives, youth sports, eating out, family gatherings, and even walking outside without a mask. (laughs) It's probably still prudent to wear masks in public settings indoors for a few more months and businesses like Starbucks and Target plan to continue requiring them. But liberals and their public health friends don't seem to want the pandemic to end. Ever. Some lockdown advocates are warning that myriad new gene variants may be more infectious, though it's unclear if they are. Note this is before Delta. And that they could render vaccines less effective. They also warn that vaccinated individuals might still transmit the virus if they are asymptomatic, in parentheses, though the probability is low. Yeah, just just wait. God. I mean, it just, it makes me want to underline, like, it's, you know, it's been said before, and we'll say it again, but the classic way, you know, that you rationalize mass death and disablement or debilitation or debility is that, like, the acute crisis can't last long, and it has to be declared over in order to, you know, install the crisis ordinary. But it's just so amazing to me, rhetorically, going back to this era, like, the, the literal numbers attached to what is unendurable, right? Like asking Americans to do something for a hundred days is like the absolute upper limit and we got an extra 13. So really shouldn't we be (laughs) grateful? And like (laughs) taking one or two vaccines is the maximum effort anyone could ever be, like that we could ever commit to. But also this idea that like, the endless crisis in that piece, what the the pandemic is like barely one year old. Like, what are you talking yeah. about? Endless cri- crises can never be more, as we know, famously, three hundred sixty-five calendar days. Like, they have to stop. It's just like it's just so wild to go back and and see the actual 
things being sold to us as like reasonable points to be making. Like what, what other crisis in world history? I'm like, it's true that, you know, the eight month world crisis, then, then it stopped because it's just too tiring to keep it up for a second year. Like what? (laughs) what are you talking about here? It is that like priority of sentiment, as you're saying already, like everything is about how our, you know, feeling relationship is to reality and has nothing to do with actually confronting the reality itself. It's so wild. That reminds me of the thing that we stressed really hard, um, I think last fall, which was that, um, and this was something that like Phil really spearheaded. Mm. Um, so I wish he was here to, to speak on this, but basically like realizing really that almost every pandemic piece of like pandemic legislation or like program that was, uh, expanded or extended for the pandemic had a, expiration date tied not to the public health emergency or, or to COVID itself, but just to like regular legislative calendar shit. Mm. Like random, um, like you know, tied mm. to political cycles. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, which you actually know, the problem is that public health is, has been politicized. And if we <laughs> <just laughs> remove it from the political process, everything. Absolutely. <laughs> Keep your politics out of my science, as they say. Oh yeah. Science. Vaccine that um, lawn sign. <laughs> the uh actually that that point though that I was just making um remember that thing about the like um kind of already fixed sundown dates not relating to anything real because actually that's about to be rather relevant which I didn't mm. even think about when I was making these uh no- notes so um before we get there though March 2021 is also the month that Emily Oster publishes the infamous article your unvaccinated kid is like a vaccinated grandma piece in the Atlantic um still makes me cringe every time I hear it again in the context though of this like (laughs) unbridled vaccine enthusiasm which I'm you know whatever like they're great they just don't they can't do all the work you know a random grandma (laughs) we found a random vaccinated grandma (laughs) she is just like this child just like this child (laughs) don't you see the resemblance Um, what is this these analogies are so unhinged when you stack them all up one after another uh here's another uh great one you'll love this uh if if you like that one jules you'll like this Uh, lucy mcbride um writes an op-ed for the washington post where she adapts the idea of fomo or fear of of missing out for the kids out there um into phono fear of normal That's cool. Um, Which, as a gay person, I do have. So, uh, <laughs> just just being honest. By mid-April, the liberal drumbeat against mask mandates uh, amps up, specifically aimed uh, first at outdoor mask mandates. Um, Derek Thompson writes in the Atlantic: Are outdoor mask mandates still necessary? Governments need to give Americans an off-ramp. Early appearance of that uh, term. Mm-hmm. To the post-pandemic world, ending outdoor mask requirements would be a great place to start. I love how some people have just like memory hold that they ever wore masks outside at all. Yeah. Natalie Schur writes a piece for the New Republic headline, Set Us Free from Outdoor (laughs) Mask Mandates. So um, very shortly, like really shortly, I think it's like a week or two weeks tops uh, after this round of discourse happens, the CDC issues a guideline update saying that People who are fully vaccinated do not need to wear masks in small outdoor gatherings. Um, people mm. usually don't even remember that one. It's kind of yeah. a deep cut, actually. Yeah. The April it's one. like it's the choose your own adventure of it all. Like, yeah. and people, I, I, you know, again, which is which is maybe more um, corrosive to people's, mm. you know, ability to decide which health behaviors they should adopt. 
communicating information about how the vaccines work or again, yeah, like this choose your own adventure bullshit. It's like one of those right. like diagrams, like universal clear messaging, wear yeah. a mask in addition to get getting vaccinated or I don't know. Um, well, consult this chart uh, or now at this point, go to cdc.gov and enter your uh, and sorry, scroll down to COVID-19 because it's not at the fucking top anymore. Even <laughs> find COVID-19, go to like the transmission page, like the data page, enter your zip code or I think actually enter the name of the county that you live in. If you know that off the top <laughs> of your fucking head, you know what I mean? And then like look at your community level and consult this chart that, that whatever. Sorry, that's I'm getting ahead of myself. Is no, your gathering you're... outdoors? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. Like how um, many people are in your gathering? Zero to zero to three, right. <laughs> three to six. And I remember very clearly that we covered this um, on death panel at the time that that happened. And we talked about it really as, I don't know if we use this term explicitly, but we, the way we really talked about it was as a trial balloon mm-hmm. basically. And that's kind of, I think what it ultimately uh, was, was like, yeah. can, will people be like cool with this? Oh yeah, actually we got like a lot of, you know, a bunch of liberals clapped basically when the CDC did this. And so by early May, uh, 2021 days before the CDC would uh, make its big guideline change. I just want to run through a couple things. Um, as I look through this timeline, I recognize that around May 2021 is now what I would call like familiar territory for the overall mess that we're currently in. Like it all smacks as very familiar after this point. Um, May 4th, The Atlantic publishes the piece, The Liberals Who Can't Quit Lockdown. This kind of resonates with another uh, term that's being thrown around at the time. There's competing uh, ideas about who coined this. It's like either Yashar Ali or Brian Stetler. But um, <laughs> one one of those two people or like some random person on Twitter and then it was taken up by them. Who cares? Whatever. Coined the term pandemic addicts that, that goes was around. A, that was cute. That was uh, people who gorgeous. use masks. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then so on, on May 13th, 2021, the CDC makes an abrupt announcement. Vaccinated people no longer are recommended to mask indoors or outdoors. Walensky announces the change, including the following statement, quote, We have all longed for this moment when we can get back to some sense of normalcy. Based on the continuing downward trajectory of cases, the scientific data on the performance of our vaccines and our understanding of how the virus spreads, uh, that moment has come for those who are fully vaccinated, unquote. Um, When I say an abrupt announcement, here's what I mean. Here's the Washington Post, May 15th, writing about how it went down. Quote, the huge policy turnaround caught senior White House and administration officials, medical experts, elected officials and business leaders completely off guard and prompted some physicians to criticize the move as premature. Some Democratic governors were angered by the White House's rollout, arguing the move effectively passed the buck to states and businesses to implement the new rules without any assistance adding that, quote, a study in JAMA earlier this month that found evidence that a second dose of the Pfizer vaccine protects against all infections, even asymptomatic infection, helped convince the agency scientists that it was time to change the guidance, unquote. This is fucking cruel optimism. Yeah, it's cruel optimism for sure. Um, that afternoon, Biden and Harris make a maskless appearance on the White House lawn to tout the change. Biden says the following, quote, We will rebuild our economy, reclaim our lives, and get back to normal. We'll laugh again. We'll know joy again. We'll smile again. And now, 
see one another's smile. Unquote. God, that um, year was so hard when I didn't laugh even once until the president said I could laugh again. So glad <laughs> we did this. It was all worth it. Just like a blind person inside. I love when it's implied that because I can't see smiles, my life isn't joyless. Full. It's yeah. joyless. Yeah. joyless. <laughs> it's it reminds me of the famous story of Ray Charles being on television as the like World Trade Center uh, sort of media circus is happening, and someone says to him like, "Well." It probably wasn't as bad for you because you didn't have to watch it. Oh, my God. And he was like, what are you talking about? You know, and this is like not during 9-11. It wasn't like live happening at the moment. (laughs) This is like several days later. People are still just talking about it. So this is like after, you know, sitting on it for a couple days, knowing I'm going to have to talk to Ray Charles. This is what came to the, the, the fucking news anchor's mind to ask him and say, oh, well, you know, 9-11 probably was less psychologically damaging to you because you're blind because you couldn't see the people jumping off the top of the building i'm sure there's a metaphor in there somewhere for how we basically have no like case number or like little (laughs) reporting infrastructure on covid information now but Mm -hmm. i don't want to make it so anyway now (laughs) um i want to go back to this post uh washington post report though because it mentions um governors and i think this is really important Mm. Um, let me play this part back quote Some Democratic governors were angered by the White House's rollout, arguing the move effectively passed the buck to states and businesses to implement the new rules without any assistance, Mm -hmm. unquote. So what happens exactly as a result of this? Um, Well, if you look at uh, the timeline, if you go state by state, as I did, um, most of the existing uh, mass mandates that were still in place uh, May 13th when this announcement was made. Most of the remaining mass mandates that are statewide um, at this point are dropped shortly after and they do not return. For context, here's a breakdown of what I mean by that. Um, so the following reflects, I think, the state, uh, like g- give or take, I think this is, this is um, not, not accounting for like every state, um, but the following reflects the state of masking more or less around the time. First of all, I know a lot of people forget about this. Um, Ten states actually never had a statewide mask mandate mm-hmm. at any point in the pandemic, which is a far cry, I think, from the like right wing and now liberal really portrayal of COVID protections as being like these years where we all lived in like a total institution, except for it was our home or something. Um, but so the, the 10 states that never actually had a statewide mask mandate, those are these um, Alaska, Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Idaho, Missouri, Nebraska, Oklahoma, South Dakota and Tennessee. And I'll add for this segment. Sorry that I don't have information readily at hand on um, territories or tribal nations or other places that fall within the empire. Um, also, on May 13th, 14 states mask mandates had already ended or just ex- or just recently expired. And those have largely still not returned uh, either at at any point. Um, Those states are Alabama, Arkansas, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Mississippi, Montana, New Hampshire, North Dakota, Texas, Utah, Wisconsin, Wyoming, and South Carolina, which interestingly, just one day before on May 12th, um, one day before the CDC announcement, the governor of South Carolina not only ended the mass mandate, but issued an executive order prohibiting mass mandates in the state. And of course, this leaves, if you're counting along, half of all states, as of the morning of May 13th, before Walensky made this announcement, had mass mandates. 
shortly following 17 states dropped their mask mandates like almost all of that more than half dropped their mask mandates shortly you know following this announcement and each of these states never had them return also so may 14th colorado minnesota north carolina may 15th maryland virginia May 19th, Connecticut. May 21st, Delaware. May 24th, Maine. May 28th, New Jersey. May 29th, Massachusetts. June 2nd, Ohio. June 11th, Kentucky. June 15th, Vermont. June 20th, West Virginia. 22nd, Michigan. June 28th, Pennsylvania. And July 6th, Rhode Island. California also dropped theirs for a period from June 15th, um, reinstating it between December 2021 and February 2022. So really, it's like 18 states, but 17 of them never had it come back. Why do I list it all out like this? You may be wondering. So almost universally, the dates listed there are the dates that the mask mandates were set to expire unless renewed. That means that the day Walensky made this announcement, May 13th, the majority of states that still had mass mandates in place were just about to have to decide whether mm. to renew their mass mandates or not. That's sketchy. And yeah. here comes the CDC and the Biden administration at the 11th hour to say, nah, it's all good. That's you don't have to do that. Sketchier than I realized. To further contextualize that Washington Post bit about governors, um, here's Maryland Governor Larry Hogan speaking May 14th, the day after the CDC announcement. Quote, on Wednesday, um, we announced effective tomorrow we are lifting all COVID capacity and distancing restrictions. He's talking about a separate announcement they had made like the day before. Following the surprise announcement yesterday on the change of policy by the CDC and in consultation with our health department and our team of public health officials and medical experts, the state of Maryland will now also be lifting the mask mandate in conjunction with all the other measures. Hogan's a Republican, though, so and our arguments about liberals. So here's Democratic Governor Jared Polis of Colorado being more effusive than Larry Hogan, the Republican, about the change. This is also from May 14th, quote, if you have been fully vaccinated, this is from Jared Polis of Colorado, if you have been fully vaccinated, the pandemic is largely over for you and you can now resume your activities without a mask. This is the day we have been waiting for. If you haven't yet been vaccinated, you should continue to wear a mask in public indoor spaces. I hope the fun of an unmasked future incentivizes those who have yet to get the vaccine (laughs) to do so. Oh my God. Fun of an unmasked few of that. I will note, like, it was really instructive for you to go through that timeline, Artie. Yeah. Um, And I'll just note that at the time that this announcement happened, I was living, you know, as I mean, I live in Pennsylvania. um, And I went to the grocery store, you know, good old, good old Giant Eagle, like the day or two (laughs) after this announcement, you know, like May 14th, 2021, I went to Giant Eagle and like, Where previously, you know, mask compliance had been pretty high. Like, I don't know, you know, around Pittsburgh, I don't really know what vaccine uptake is like. I think it's good, but not amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, No one like the instant that uh, that recommendation dropped, like I went to the grocery store and I was probably the only person in there wearing a mask, which was incredibly jarring at that time, you know, coming coming right off of that first like. 
COVID winter. So the effect was like totally, at least in my experience, was totally immediate. And everyone, yeah, everyone received the message similar. as like, okay, we're done now. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's, I mean, for sure. If you well, wanted understandably. to, and if you wanted to create an environment where it was impossible to renew those mask mandates, mm-hmm. if you knew they were mm-hmm. about to expire and you wanted to make it impossible for them to be renewed, then this is exactly what I would do if I was going out to produce the result that we got. You know, I would go, you have some larger superseding authority make a symbolic gesture, right? Yeah, I mean, think, think about this context. We also know at the time, this is when they had already pledged, like by the time that um, Walensky makes that statement on May 13th, like the uh, they, they announced the guideline change on masking, right? By the time they make that announcement, like Biden has already been promising the, like the idea that the 4th of July will mark our independence from the virus. <laughs> I know, mm, God. Right. To get us to July 4th. This is our target date to get life in America closer to normal and began to celebrate our independence from the virus together with our friends and our loved ones as we celebrate Independence Day. What a wasted opportunity. Yeah. What a fucking Cause, waste. Because to your point, as you're, as, you're, as you're highlighting, like, and this, I, I didn't even, like, think about that. I was, obviously, I prepared these notes thinking about that, uh, po- like, possibility of coordination or whatever, which, you know, we'll probably never be able to prove because, like, the press is not interested in fucking digging through Even if this it's stuff. not coordination, the they whole, really did not help. But, no, no, but, like, if you, the, to, to your point, what you're making me think about, too, is, like, how, for example, if those 17 mass mandates were renewed as opposed to being allowed to expire, I mean... For what period would they be renewed for? Would that perhaps, right. mm-hmm. um, you know, go against Biden's yeah. <laughs> possibility of having a mask-free timeline. Independence Day? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, not to, again, I'm not saying that that's what happened. I'm just saying that, like, as ever, I would like to read, like, every fucking document that passed through the halls of this particular administration. But <laughs> in the absence of that, I'm I'm just like, you know, I'm I'm not saying there's like some conspiracy here. I am just saying that it's like it's sketchy. It it could have been as simple as wanting to avoid a week of bad press. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. it could have been a very simple mistake. They could have had no idea what they were doing, but if you if you wanted to fuck things up so badly that states would have no room to renew these things then like this is a perfect way to completely narrow because i was i always thought of this moment as well the biden administration doesn't want to be the bad guy anymore right like and so the cdc kind of want everyone to like them yeah the cdc kind (sighs) of is like you know what this is up to states and it it plays into this idea that i've read phil right about in the past which is the idea that States are laboratories of democracy and we can use them as a pressure valve, right? Like, we'll just like kick this controversial issue to the states and they can decide what they want to do. And then it's not our problem. And this is like a way that some people think about the. Use it. Yeah. Right. This is a way that some political theorists like think about federalism. This is the way some people think about how our government works in the United States. And I'm just like, 
Did you guys fuck this up or do it on purpose? Either way, the result. Either way, the result was you made a political environment that made it nearly impossible for these states to be able to do anything to maintain these mask mandates. So worth going through a little bit more context, though, on this. So in the immediate aftermath of this, obviously, it's not all like sunshine and rainbows. They do get a lot of criticism uh, about it. It's rather controversial. The controversy, however, as I think you guys will probably remember, is um, what people actually get upset about with this change is um, basically this question. How can we trust unvaccinated people to self-identify as unvaccinated and thus continue to mask since the entire premise is based on vaccinated people being able to move about their lives without masking now? Saturday Night Live, the 14th of May, 2021. And remember, they only had 24 hours to put this little show together. So uh, please welcome the CDC players. And their first scene, man walks into a bar. Welcome to a bar. Thank you. Do I still have to wear a mask indoors? You actually do not. Great. Well, as long as you're vaccinated. No, I'm not. Oh, then that's bad. Well, I'm entering a bar at 11 a.m. Did you really think I was vaxxed? Because that's on you. You're right. I deserve COVID. And scene. Okay, I don't... Again, Wen, with the liberal paternalism. Lena Wen yeah. makes this argument. Ashish Jha makes this <sighs> point. Uh, at this point, Ashish Jha is still Mr. CNN, the TV doctor. Um, this is like one of the only pieces of like light criticism that he really gives to the Biden administration. They really are a ever. bunch of babysitters. You're right, Artie. Um, the Washington Post uh, asks in um, not even an op-ed in a health reporting. Uh, sorry, in a, in a uh, article in the health reporting section, they uh, have a headline. Quote, uh, the new mask guidance relies on an honor system. Do we trust each other enough to make it work? There does seem to be a tipping point, right? Like, in the, obviously, I think, you know, part of what's so compelling about, about retracing these steps is seeing how groundwork is laid, obviously, slowly. You know, it accumulates. It comes from 10 or 20 or 100 different directions. There's no one, yeah. you know, sort of directing it at first, although then clearly political decisions are being made. But something seems like a threshold seems to be crossed, right? I'm just noting the mm-hmm. rhetorical difference between spring into summer 2021 yeah. when it's all, mm-hmm. hey, don't feel bad. It's over. <laughs> Take off that mask and smile, you beautiful thing. We're going to have a great <laughs> barbecue. But then immediately we're in September, Right. Um, as Delta is, you know, really starting to emerge too on in the public mind, but immediate the tone is shifted to nihilism, right? Where it's uh oh, we can't ask anyone to do anything because no one can do anything, no one can be trusted, everything is everyone is bad when we're a collective. And so individuals must be good, right? But that really does feel like there's this sort of bizarre threshold moment in the summer. And I don't, you know, I don't I don't want to attribute it solely to the to the White House. Um yeah. but but I'm just seeing like it's really stark, right? That's like within two or three months we go from happy, 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 freedom, freedom, emancipation to oh well, <laughs> like we couldn't even Winter try to wear masks. And death. Yeah. Well, I wish I could remember who said this because this was not my initial insight. So if if any of you remember, it might have been something said on Death Panel. Please remind me. But this um this beat that you've just taken us through, 
party about, you know, this honor system and, oh, mm. you know, how will we trust each other enough to make this guidance work? <laughs> it's just um, the Biden administration's approach in such a nutshell, because someone said, you know, either on death panel or, or somewhere else that the Biden administration's approach is like the contours of it are to displace like political conflict into individual conflict or to like mm. channel yeah. the conflict inherent yeah. in political problems, like into yeah. conflict between individuals. And I feel mm -hmm. like 2021, I mean, this is a, this is a great example of that. I think mm -hmm. um, is people just kind of glowering, glowering at each other, you know, in like <laughs> Starbucks or whatever. Like I've certainly been that person, like glowering at people in, uh, like a coffee shop or somewhere because they're Man. they're not masking and I don't know you know like I don't know <laughs> what their uh, vaccination status is. That's my purse. I don't know you. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. But it also like you, I feel like you Sorry. see it throughout um, 2021. It becomes like yeah. a really big deal of like, oh, but how do we negotiate the holidays? You know, like all having such different like such different tolerances for the risk that COVID <laughs> poses. And it's like, okay, but why is it, why is this something for us to like sort out interpersonally within our families? Like, why isn't there a federal policy to like reduce the risk of COVID transmission? But that yeah. is it, right? Like that is the Biden like approach to, or the democratic or the liberal, you know, Democrats approach to governance, right? It's like, well, it's, we prove that we're good and we're worthy of your support by shedding all the as many political issues as possible yeah. and not doing anything about them yeah. right like that really is i think you know kind of the heart of it right it's like well you know no one will ever reelect us if we you know deal with this pandemic so we're actually going to triumphantly take it off our shoulders and <laughs> hurl it at all of you and you can all catch it however you want because that's the beautiful tapestry of how different we all are all of our all of our thanksgiving dinners have different side dishes on the table <laughs> and different yeah, variants of covid <laughs> yeah go girl it, give us nothing <laughs> yeah nothing but at best like completely flaccid like cast sunstein-esque nudge uh ideas about like some sort of like three steps removed behavioral psychology idea that's like not actually from behavioral psychology but is from like a management text or something like, like that but anyway it's a linkedin the, post um i but before we get into the timeline i want to say uh one thing just of like um i think the first thing that um uh, something that jules was saying uh just just a, a moment ago one of the things that um, like I appreciate you having that takeaway, uh, Jules, that you did about the kind of like ongoingness um, and mm -hmm. the and the, you know, as you mentioned, like it's not just the Biden administration, but a lot of it is or it is like at the very least the way I think about, about both this and um, COVID year three. Also, some of the other episodes that we've done is like, you know, obviously we talk about it as like a concept of sort of how hegemony works on the show a lot. But one of the ways that mm -hmm. I think about with this is like both the Biden administration and the press kind of like tee each other up. And then often, you know, the Biden administration are the ones who like take the final, you know, hit on it or, or whatever. Yeah. The other way that I think about this is like, I do find it very ironic that during the Trump administration, one of the main things that liberal journalists like to talk about a lot was the analogy of the boiling frog. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and like, that's a hundred percent what, this is this whole process, this and COVID year three. But anyway, I digress back to July, 2021. Um, <laughs> so 
by July, with the Delta variant now starting to rage, um, the CDC tries to change its messaging back to some degree. Um, worth noting that it doesn't totally change its messaging like back to what it used to be. Uh, I think that like similar to how you know, often when people talk about mass mandates going away, as opposed to talking about how so many of them were just obliterated by this decision in May 2021. I think there's kind of almost a fantasy that they kind of came back in July when the CDC mm. reissued this uh, new declaration that like you should actually probably put your mask back on. That's obviously not what happened. Most mass mandates were um, were actually just totally gone from that point, though in July, the CDC does try to like change its guidelines back, although this time it's not like a full on change back to the original recommendation. It is instead um, what they say now is people should wear a mask in areas of substantial or high transmission specifically. So this is actually kind of a precursor moment mm. to the community level. Um, oh, change another we- branch in the choose your own adventure. Mm-hmm. Increasingly complicated nudges. Everyone mm. loves it. Um, but so it's too late by the time CDC tries to put it back. Uh, there are eight states remaining only with statewide mask mandates. And, you know, anyway, consider what else they're doing at the time. If you want to talk about fucking mixed messaging or, or whatever, or choose your own adventure me- messaging, you know, the CDC is trying to put its masking recommendation back at the very same time while they are projecting the line debuting in July 16th, 2021, that we are in a quote pandemic of the unvaccinated. So yeah, again, congratulations to the team. What a great way to justify mm. having to walk back in the stake. Yeah. yeah. Um, of course, there are more states like New Jersey by this point that have dropped statewide mask mandates, but still have a mask mandate in schools. Um, this divergence attracts a mm. lot of ire from the people that you would expect if you're a longtime listener. Um, but suffice it to say, like all these events, spring 2021, as we're talking about, are actually, I think, the turning point on masking. One reason I mentioned schools, another fallout from this announcement, May 13th, 2021, same, I guess, sorry, this is like a little bit out of, out of order, but since I'm mentioning schools, basically to go back to May 13th, 2021, um, the same day Walensky announces the abrupt drop of masking. Here's a piece of reporting from Bloomberg, quote, Randy Weingarten, president of one of the largest teachers unions in the U.S., plans to call for a full reopening of public schools by the fall, unquote. And everything that follows, I think, is really, you know, aftermath. All the litany of things that, as we show in COVID year three, also to a degree last year in COVID year two, that completely foreclose on masking um, or universal masking, at least by the first few months of 2022. And then one one other just, like uh, you know, thing to note while we're in July, as we talk about in um, last year's year interview, COVID year two, on July 29th, with 610,132 on the official death count, a CDC document leaks showing high transmissibility of the Delta variant with one slide reading, the war has changed. Um, interestingly, though, as opposed to kind of recognizing what this could mean in a more broad sense for the you know points that we've been making this whole episode, uh, instead, the Delta variant is basically used to explain away why transmission and infections are happening among vaccinated people, even though breakthrough infections were almost certainly happening in the first place before well, Delta. So and that's if, you'll, just- if you'll recall that CDC document that leaked, if I'm thinking of the same one, which was like a PowerPoint, I think. Yeah. It unequivocally recommended universal masking. indoor masking. Mm. Yeah. Um, in light of the the Delta variant and its capacity to 
infect people who were fully vaccinated, right? Like they had all this summer, you know what I mean? Like this May, June, July, this whole period that you've covered, like data was coming in. I forget when the the first, you know, like sort of big drop really establishing that the vaccines were not sufficient to prevent symptomatic infection and to prevent transmission was data from there was like an outbreak, an outbreak in like P-Town, Provincetown in Massachusetts around Pride. There was like a a morbidity and mortality weekly report Mm -hmm, around that. mm -hmm. Like I, you know, it was like very concerning data that was I, I forget when it was published. It was right around this time, which means that, you know, it was coming in to the to the CDC and to the administration at some point before that. So the the timeline's fuzzy. I think like quite early on, we can have some like empathy, I guess, for the vaccine only strategy. Like before it was, you know, really established or known, you know, it was certainly like possible that the vaccines could could completely stop transmission um, in its tracks. But, but, you know, by the spring, summer, the the Provincetown outbreak, like June, right? Like mid-June. Yeah. So like the administration knew you yeah. know what I mean? Like, it's not like they didn't have this information showing that their the core yeah. assumption of their entire strategy was not going to work. And yep. um, and then they failed to adapt at all. Yeah, and they had down, no interest in, in adapting. And they didn't even yeah. lean that hard into the strategy. Like, it's not like I mentioned this in the COVID year three episode, but it's not like they fucking tried very hard to, like, do better vaccine outreach, you know, like to, yeah. to get those uptake numbers up. <laughs> or go door to door or set up like... I mean, there have been, you know, federally fund. There have certainly been federally funded like uh, vaccine clinics around the country, but not nearly enough to do the fucking, you know, go through the whatever. It, the, we've we've talked about this all all before, um, but yeah, I think that's a really important point, mm-hmm. Abby. That like by this point, it's like okay, sure. I do remember in early 2021, like we at Death Panel were like skeptical about the vaccine only strategy, if only because we knew like we have these like numbers that were specifically from like, as B mentioned earlier, like trials that were happening during a period of much more masking, much more social distancing. A lot of people were like Mm -hmm. at home fucking here's a deep cut. There was still pandemic unemployment insurance (laughs) at the time. And so we were like, okay, like, seems great. I really hope this is, I really hope they're right. But, you know, we don't actually have any data definitively showing what they're trying to say, which is that, like, Mm -hmm. they don't, that there's no transmission and you can't get infected or get sick if you're vaccinated in the absence of other, you know, pandemic protections. So, like, maybe slow your roll. But, like, I could get, you know, I, I get the enthusiasm, like you're saying, and then just, you know, totally not absorbing new information mm-hmm. about it just totally if if absorbing it yeah shutting it down spinning new lines around it you know like Backed the and path, relaxed emerges yeah, this is when the rhetorical the shift really happens too yeah. Um, mm-hmm. yeah and you have this liberal core the kind of vaxxed and relaxed whether they're commentators or just like managers or whatever you know just like random people this kind of identity around ascribing like a kind of um moral high ground with you know Mm -hmm. i'm trusting the biden administration i'm trusting science you know i'm a good liberal who trusts in mm -hmm. science like i'm not making trouble so soon after trump you know so this brings us to a slightly finer point um where things get maybe actually a little more complicated um but i want us to kind of you know try and 
talk through this and be just real, real, really, you know, realistic about it. Um, all that timeline that we just went through, I, I think is kind of getting to this. Um, we get to a point, um, and I, I'm going to say that this discourse, the sort of seeds of it, I think start around this same time that we're talking about now, like July of 2021, um, where we start to see what ultimately emerges into our current sort of regime of like one way masking works. Um, and here is the sort of narrative that I think explains it. There are, there are kind of like two separate but linked discourses actually that like merge uh, into this. There's the one way masking works um, discourse, which emerges somewhat later. But first, a kind of like component piece that I think gets used by the one way masking works people um, that is sort of a, a component that builds ultimately in that is there starts to be a lot more sort of top line discussion, like very prominent discussion about mask quality. Mm-hmm. Um, so and consumer ch- personal consumer choices yeah. and fake masks versus real masks. Yeah. Um, some of that does start here, uh, as I said, right here where we were in the timeline, July 2021. So here is, for example, the Washington Post, July 24th of uh, 2021. Um, this is from a piece called Why Some Experts Recommend Upgrading to N95 Masks to Help Fight the Delta Variant. Quote, Delta is so contagious that when we talk about masks, I don't think we should just talk about masks, Scott Gottlieb, former commissioner of the FDA, said during a recent appearance on CBS's Face the Nation. I think we should be talking about high-quality masks, such as N95 respirators. In an interview with the Washington Post, Monica Gandhi, a professor of medicine and an infectious disease expert at the University of California at San Francisco, expressed a similar sentiment, quote, we can't say we're going back to masks without discussing type of masks. So this is about to get complicated, as I mentioned. So just bear with me. A um, <laughs> couple, couple of things just to set this up. One, obviously, N95s are ideal. Not disputing that. However, the discourse that kicks up in 2021 about N95s being the only way to protect you from COVID has basically one effect ultimately which is it raises the bar for masking and mask mandates to return again i'm not about to sit here and say to you that like homemade cloth masks are as good as n95s obviously they are not but i will say that the practice of broad and inconsistent but broad uh masking that we had in 2020 and early 2021 was absolutely better than what we have now which is demanding that everyone simply one-way mask um By August 2021, this drumbeat is picking up. So ABC News, for instance, runs a national segment with Monica Gandhi. Uh, What's the safest mask to wear? Here's what a doctor says. Um, (laughs) Worth noting also at this point, even though most mask mandates are gone, um, the press is basically running with a lot of things that are just trying to draw the whole idea of mass mandates and the whole idea of masking itself into question whether it's still relevant or not the atlantic for instance runs a piece august 6th uh, august 6th of 2021 titled or rather originally titled when will masking end question mark though if you go to it currently i don't know if it was just a b tested or whatever but if you go to it currently um it says masks are back maybe for the long term the subheader being some people can't help but feel that masking while vaccinated is a regression, especially because this time there is no obvious off-ramp. From that piece, quote, masking, at least at pandemic levels, doesn't feel sustainable in the long term. Although vaccines confer protection against disease that's expected to last for many months, if not years, with one or two brief jabs, 
Masks require constant reinvestment and vigilance. They falter when we wear them incorrectly. They vary immensely in quality. They can tear or fall apart or fall off. They can be forgotten at home. Um, I want to note that this is the same writer who writes for the Atlantic October 19th of this year, 2022, a piece with the headline, uh, quote, it's gotten awkward to wear a mask with the (laughs) subheader. It's like showing up in a weird hat. Um, So I just find that ironic. Not me at the farmer's market in a bucket hat, sunglasses, (laughs) and like (laughs) a KM95, like totally in (laughs) fun. Giving Porsche from the White Lotus. (laughs) Oh, I wish. Right. So, um, you know, anyway, that that all sets the scene. And I want to just continue to kind of contrast this with with that uh, through line that I was mentioning that um, mass quality, again, is starting to become a hot topic by fall 2021. Um, And while quality, again, certainly matters, um, that doesn't mean that other types of masks don't help. Um, So to be super clear, um, let me just lay out what we're going to try and show here. Um, At some point between the fall of 2021 and the spring of 2022, uh, the line that cloth masks do not work and it's N95s or bust transforms actually into N95s and other high quality masks are the only masks that work. Um, that in other words, there is a conflation that occurs between DIY cloth masks and surgical masks, like uh, the cheaper ones that mm-hmm. um, are like the green or blue rectangles often. Um, the reason I say that is because of of this. As late as September 21st, 2021, here's Bloomberg sharing what is, I would argue, still absolutely sound advice. This is from an article titled, Confused About Masking? It's time to get tactical. Um, This is an article based largely on a paper in the journal Science, which I would just as easily cite, I guess. But we're talking about social reproduction here, so I think it's more damning coming from fucking Bloomberg, like the business (laughs) press. Um, but, uh, two things to note about this piece in Bloomberg. Um, one is that unlike the parade of press accounts that now tout that one way masking works, um, they present a very straightforward diagram showing the fact that we all know to be true, um, which is that universal masking cuts down on virus in the air and thus dramatically decreases chances of infection relative to other distributions of mask wearing compared with, you know, for example, one-way masking. Which again, mm-hmm. the point of wearing a mask is not to prevent COVID, but it's actually to reduce the amount of virus that you're taking in and yep. reduce the amount of virus that right. you're putting out. Yeah. Um, here's the most important quote from that Bloomberg piece, also straight from the study. Quote, while N95s do offer a higher level of protection, a well-fitted surgical mask blocks most particles. Unquote. Now keep this in mind as we go through the next bit. By late September 2021, J.G. Allen, uh, or Joseph Allen... J.G. Uh, Allen not... and the social murder junkies. <laughs> yeah. Um, Someone on Twitter made that joke, and I love it. I can't remember who it was. Um, sorry for the lack of attribution, everybody. Uh, so yeah, J- uh, Joseph Allen, um, at this point, uh, fall 2021, really makes a big splash, or his biggest splash yet uh, in the pandemic, starts to argue that um, we should focus less on masking and more on ventilation. Um, and of course, ultimately arguing um, and being, I think, the most prominent proponent of the idea that one-way masking works. Um, Before we proceed through... Yes. Um, this discussion well maybe you're going to talk about this already so i don't want to preempt you but it bears mention here that 
J.G. Allen is like a ventilation engineer. That's yes. his that's mm. his subspecialty within the world of public health. I don't know what exactly like he's trained in in public health, but he's like a healthy buildings guy. Exactly. Um, so he has and I mean, he like he's written a book about this. I don't know this for certain, but I, I think that he offers like consulting services you know, to businesses and things like that on how to improve ventilation. So, you know, if we're going to be talking about Joseph Allen in this, I think it's important to know that uh, he, his interest in this is not like purely scientific. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'm glad that you contextualized that because that's actually very important because I think it's quite, you know, it, it makes sense to me why this argument resonates so much with liberals it's like oh we just need to you know do some infrastructure upgrades mm-hmm. like okay cool like i don't know i guess like our conservative en- enemies will like love that because we're going to create jobs or something by also, whatever but it's invisible right also it's invisible you don't have to do like you don't have Maybe to like just not that this has motivated them to do anything about right. actually improving ventilation or, or whatever but I, I digress the thing is though that's really the again this is really important context though because the way that joseph allen is then portrayed as we'll get to in a second is just as blanket harvard professor says basically mm. not like guy whose whole thing is building ventilation says hey i got one weird trick to end the pandemic Right. right, not the healthy building Perhaps he only so, has one trick because he has a narrow perspective to begin with. Yeah, mm-hmm. but so um, in any case, so September 28th, Alan writes in the New York Times, um, indoor masking doesn't always make sense when everyone is vaccinated. <laughs> He's then all over the place in fall 2021. Uh, October 21st, Alan writes in the Washington Post, quote, schools should do away with mask mandates by the end of the year. Um, That next day, October 22nd, 2021, CNBC runs a piece centered all around uh, Joseph Allen's perspective with the headline, without firm school mask mandate deadlines, we can sleepwalk into indefinite masking, says Harvard professor, (laughs) as I just said. And then who will... (sighs) By my consulting services. <laughs> um, conservative press also starts lapping this up uh, with the New York Post highlighting mm. uh, Alan's perspective in the piece. U.S. mask guidance for kids is the strictest across the world. Perhaps most consequentially, December 15th, 2021, Alan writes for the Washington Post uh, an article headlined our playbook to fight COVID-19 is outdated. Here are 10 updates for 2022 because everyone loves listicles um <laughs> one of the supposed updates just to read from the piece quote one way masking is fine let's dispense with the notion that masks are only protective if everyone is wearing them here's a way to think about it if everyone wears surgical masks again conflate it like here's the surgical mask thing stepping in for cloth masks If everyone wears surgical masks, which have a 70% filtration rate, the combined protection is 91% because the virus must pass through masks twice. But N95 masks, now widely available, offer better protection than universal surgical mask use. For anyone who fears moving away from universal masking, the great news is that they can continue to wear an N95 mask, along with being vaccinated and boosted, and live a low-risk life 
regardless of what others around them are doing. Isn't it interesting how that Mm. translates there? Mm -hmm. Okay, what I would like to point out here is that a 70% filtration rate means different things Mm -hmm. depending on how much virus is in the air. Yes, filtration rate also is not risk of infection. No. Mm -hmm. So 30%... Which conflating, and everyone just went with, just saying, sorry. 30% of the particles that are in the air getting through your mask carries a different risk of infection depending on the concentration of viral particles in the air around you. 30% of a bigger number is more than 30 percent of a smaller number yes exactly um, and that but are you sure yeah i'm <laughs> no, exactly. pretty sure if he's I mean, right <laughs> if he's right if he is right and one-way masking is like 91 percent effective you can still 100 percent get covid that way and if no can, one around you is masking and it's also and only s- effective way in his fantasy for the one person so like everyone else who walks through that room who's there like it doesn't matter for like we don't care about them apparently but you know because those people are rational and they're not afraid right. to move away they're from not afraid masking. but it does seem like you know this this kind of technocratic numbers you know, kind of Excel spreadsheet, imagine if you will a room kind of discourse, <laughs> right? I mean, it really does seem, it gives that illusion, right, of scientificity yeah. and it gives that illusion of rationality, you know, and just to say, you know, to bring it back to like, to the vibes and to the sentiment of it all, right? It gives you that reassuring sentiment. It's It, it to me feels like a very... I mean, I know we're hitting that time um, historically when it's already starting to happen, but it's like very much like, you know, hashtag we have the tools, right? It's just yeah, this sort absolutely. of like litany or list or like, you know, being able to recite a series of things. And I think indoor air filtration is such a great example. I know that's not what you know, he was just talking about with the mask example, but like, you know, it just because like it didn't happen. So it's just like a thing that we could talk about in the same way that we talk about, you know, Paxlovid as if it's just like out there. Anyways, just all of these things, right? Where it's oh my like, God, yeah, it's so reassuring because mm-hmm. we could technically it's, hear some numbers that you could imagine to imagine something really happened. It's Biden. It's the Biden approach again, in a nutshell, mm-hmm. you have no control over the parameters of viral transmission. And You have no control over how much, well, I mean, you have varying levels of control, I guess, but many, many people have very little control over how much they now need to be in the world to work and do whatever else. Yeah. So those two things are contradictory. That's kind of, those are two sort of conflicting, there's like necessarily a conflict embedded there. And instead of resolving the conflict at the level of policy, instead the Biden administration just displaces it down to the level of individuals choosing, you know, it's like, and it's, the, it's this cruel optimism that you're, and it's this cruel optimism that you can actually be in control of mm. your exposure risk, which you can't, yes. like you can't anywhere you go in this country still to this day. Like what, what are we a year, a year out from this? Yeah. Right. And um, you're, no one is in control of their exposure risk, whether you, you mask indoors or not, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, this, this is kind of the, the thing because it's the, this line in its emergence, particularly, you know, as, as I'm trying to contextualize it with these other things, like it's emergence, particularly at this time when in the absence of 
something like this, some sort of, you know, uh, individual risk calculation innovation rhetorically basically is only what this is. This is, you know, I don't, I don't want anyone to get this twisted. JG Allen did not do a study. JG Allen did not like come in and this is like at best back of the envelope and probably just vibes something that he like wrote out. It's straight Um, up Cartesian science. You know, he's abstracting from specific instances, (laughs) specific data to like, it's ad libbing. Yeah. And I, and I want to cast a lot of, uh, you know, I want to cast appropriate doubt on this because of one particular reason, which is that like, you know, I understand, for example, um, why I understand, for example, why even people who really, truly do care about COVID have even, you know, judged people as like not caring about COVID because I don't know, maybe they can't afford to have like every time they use a mask for it to be an N95 or something. Right. I like I, I understand why people do that and why people have approached the N95 or bust mentality from basically any point on the political spectrum like you will find <laughs> that's people such a who good are way like, to put it and 95 mm-hmm. or bust is all of it and in addition to all the other many pandemic policies and social supports that i would like to see and generally i don't know the end of capitalism and uh, health communism or, or whatever we can uh, to to step aside from all of the bigger things obviously what i would like to see is like the federal government to like just provide free fucking n95s to everyone and then have like a mass mandate um, and have a non-carceral type of mass mandate, which is to say, I'm not talking about, I don't want this to be like enforced. That would be ridiculous. And as we've talked about in the case of prisons and because prison and because like the entire carceral system drives fucking COVID spread, like I'm not talking about any of that. I do want it to be freely provided to everyone. What I'm saying is, for example, we have basically the worst possible option right now, which is that everyone is being told N95 or bust and that one way masking is like the way it's got to be. And it's this matter of personal risk and personal responsibility in the absence of that thing that I just outlined of like free N95s and a mask mandate, et cetera. If it was free surgical masks and a mask mandate for everybody, I would also be fine with that because it would be substantially fucking better. (laughs) And the science hasn't fucking changed on that. Omicron is not, like, smaller is not meaningfully smaller than like past variants and on top of that as we've talked about the like the idea the idea of like the filtration percentage being like the main thing as opposed to like i don't know like viral dosage viral load mm-hmm. or whatever mm-hmm. the amount that you're exposed to it you know there are all these things that are much more important than right. than than like making sure to have this perfect regime of uh, individual responsibility so anyway, back to the timeline to kind of make this point, though, uh, even further, for example, December 15th, 2021, here's the Boston Globe um, also talking about J.G. Allen, uh, quote, a Harvard health experts advice require the COVID-19 vaccine, not universal masking. Still, again, it's like nothing changed. No one absorbed new information. Um, anyway, J.G. Allen isn't the only one, of course. Um, Bloomberg, November 9th, 2021. Here's a lovely headline that you guys will appreciate. I think we talked about this on the show back when it happened. Quote, mask up America made sense in 2020. Now, not so much. We did talk about this. (laughs) November 20th, New York Times asks one of those annoying headlines. That's a question. uh, Quote, when can the COVID masks finally come off? (laughs) CNN, November 11th, 2021. How long will COVID-19 masking rules last? Again, recall that this is 
these are both ironic because statewide mask mandates are gone in almost everywhere. So I think at, by this point, when people are talking about mask mandates, I think they're literally conflating the state with, I don't know, businesses, like with the fact that there's a mask mandate at Best Buy mm-hmm. or something. Anyway, um, then the emergence of uh, Omicron really, I think, kicks uh, ramps up the N95 or, or bust um, thing and the one way masking deal. Uh, obviously because, you know, people say that essentially in light of Omicron, we just, you know, can't, we, we like masks can't be trusted anymore. Practically David Leonhardt on the Megan Kelly show, the 14th of March, 2022. A lot of Americans predominantly on the political left have, have come to think that masking is sort of everything. And yet when you look at the data, you actually see that during the Omicron wave, Masking doesn't seem to have had a huge effect. It looks like that Omicron is just so contagious. The kind of masking that we've done has a small effect, but only a small effect. Mm-hmm. It's like we masked back up when Delta hit and then we just never unmasked. We just never paused again to say, wait, does this make sense? Do we need to be doing this? Yes. I found that statement um, so disingenuous because probably what is more likely to be going on is that in light of all of the extra virus that's in the air because we've had you know the theme of omicron the vibe of omicron was really the the beyblade era begins we see real let it rip beyblade begins yeah so it's like is it omicron or is it just that there's so much more virus now I don't really think you could say one way for sure. No, it's we've had this conversation so many times that no one could have foreseen exactly so i'm just gonna pop this in here as an interesting footnote i hope this isn't too disruptive but i just think this is really funny um not funny kind of sad i guess in like december 2021 um i found i think i'm even gonna play the clip of this but in december 2021 there is a clip of lena wen saying um basically I'll, i'll summarize the argument look the mayor of new york is correct we shouldn't cancel the uh, New Year's ball drop in Times Square. Um, however, if you do go, you should consider wearing a mask because, you know, outdoor transmission, it's rare, but it happens. I would say that if you choose to go, make sure that you're vaccinated and boosted. Make sure that you're wearing a, um, a mask, even though it's outdoors, if there are lots of people packed around you wearing a three-ply surgical mask, don't wear a cloth mask. Cloth masks are little more than facial decorations. There's no place for them in light of Omicron. And so wear a high-quality mask, at least a three-ply surgical mask. I love that I we have think Lena, about on that. Rec- Lena on the record saying that. Again, just think about how far our discourse has come. <laughs> That like, I, I'm just, I what I was going to say is like, I think about that clip almost every time I see someone share our episode on outdoor transmission with Teresa Chapel as like the one resource on outdoor transmission. Not that it's not a good episode and not that it, there wasn't a reason that we did that because so many, it had been like fucking memory hold collectively or something. But like, this was a very normal thing to just acknowledge. So normal that Lena Wen did it that recently anyway here's the atlantic january 10th 2022 this is a ultimately a pretty influential article headline one-way masking works subhead if you're vaccinated boosted and wearing an n95 you're protected no matter what others are doing uh unquote 
This piece goes around a lot, inspires David Leonhardt to link to it many times, not just in his New York Times newsletter, but on Twitter also. Um, also in his newsletter, Leonhardt uh, begins to incorporate the doctrine that one-way masking works into his shtick shortly after this. What is one of the things that the Atlantic article itself premises its entire argument on? I'll just... Um, uh, read from it directly, quote, if you're vaccinated, boosted and wearing a well-fitted N95 or similar indoors, quote, your risk is extremely low, says Joseph Allen, a COVID and ventilation expert at Harvard. I mean, there's not much else in life that would have as low risk as that. I would qualify your risk as de minimis. An N95 mask filters about 95% of airborne particles, but two surgical masks, one on me, one on you, filter only about 91%, Allen wrote recently for the Washington Post, citing, again, this Vibes article that we're talking about. Because most people's masks aren't perfectly sealed onto their faces, studies show that N95s reduce the wearer's uptake of coronavirus part uptake of coronavirus particles by 57 to 86%. And that's on top of the protection that vaccines and boosters already offer. So again, here we go um, again. Yep. Mm-hmm. Just So again, just quoting not only Joseph Allen, but like this article in particular that we just read about um, and had made fun of. It goes on, however, to kind of show, uh, if you will, the real argument almost behind why one-way masking works became such a palliative for liberals um, who otherwise, I guess, might be become burdened with a guilty conscience. Um, <laughs> quote, the fact that an N95 protects its wearer specifically matters because we are simply not going to get every American into a mask anytime soon. <laughs> Nine states, including Florida, have banned mask mandates. In many areas where masks are required, compliance is often poor because those states and localities failed to pull back on pandemic restrictions when (laughs) cases are low. Excuse me? Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Before Omicron hit and, quote, there is fatigue that sets in, Alan says. So literally lockdowns did it. Sure. Whatever. Or like, quote unquote, pandemic restrictions did it like totally untested unsupported hypothesis about health behavior like we haven't even talked about this whole pandemic fatigue Mm -hmm. line this this whole time but you know obviously that's like a a through line here too not to be outdone of course january 26th 2022 also in the atlantic um here's a lovely headline the case against masks at school Daily Beast, January 28th, 2022. The true cost of masking young kids forever with the subheader Mm. pro-mask mandate hawks won't admit there are legitimate costs and questionable benefits to masking grade schoolers indefinitely. I hate it. I hate that the pro-mask mandate hawks won't admit those things. February 8th. You know, like the cost that I as a blind person experience, you know. Yeah, and not like, be able to uh, experience the visual of 9-11. Famously, like blind people, we can't learn anything because if we can't see your smiles, then there's no joy. There's no learning. You have full learning loss and oh. the, the world is, you know, not as good. Then I Prasad loves, <laughs> loves to talk about how masking is like actually interfering with children's like cognitive development i feel like there's some of that in in 2022 i don't know if it's this early but well there there totally is and actually there's one thing that i cut from this which is that by i think july 2022 lena wen fully does a Mm -hmm. um my child's um psychological development was like you know 
impacted by masking, et cetera, et cetera. Like <laughs> having Lena Wen as a parent, I, I'm sure totally, totally without effect. <laughs> the thing, the thing though, that I, you know, it's interesting because, you know, you mentioned that Abby, um, it just has to be acknowledged. I think I said something, you know, around like something to this effect sort of towards the beginning of this, but like, it just really has to be acknowledged. Obviously there's so much other worse discourse about masking going on concurrently Mm -hmm. with all of this. Um, the point here really is just to highlight like, what's the, what, what are liberals? Where's the mainstream, like super, you know, um, what is, what is the mainstream position that is just being endlessly regurgitated any given month by like any liberal media outlet like the Atlantic or the New York Times? Like what are capital D Democrats reading and what are they being like indoctrinated with? And then also, obviously, what is the Biden administration communicating to them about this? Because at the end of the day, the Biden administration has this entire time had the opportunity to, you know, try to push the me- push the needle in the other direction and they you know didn't as we've as we've seen they've you know they've helped push the needle with everyone else anyway february 8th 2022 um david leonhardt leans his head into a news cycle where democratic governors have just announced on mass the end of many of the remaining mask mandates as we talk about in covid year three um writing again february 8th a piece called The Mask Debate. From that piece, quote, a universal mandate doesn't work, Michael Osterholm told me. Mandates focused on older children and high quality masks can help when caseloads are rising rapidly, he added. That specific part's talking about schools. It's also, uh, <laughs> article continues, it's also relevant that teachers and students who want to continue wearing masks can do so. One-way masking with medical masks provides protection experts note so masks work at the individual level but requiring everyone to mask at the universal level that doesn't work (laughs) is that what i'm to understand from that quotation it's fucking preposterous masks work as a individual risk thing but not at the society level which if you understand the basis the basics of disease transmission it's dumb. That's like it's saying like overprescribing like antibiotics argument. doesn't make superbugs unless you feel like it makes superbugs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, now, again, I want to draw some really explicit connections to COVID year three here. Um, brief version of that timeline was this. Um, again, November 2021, the Democrat governor of New Jersey holds focus groups, decides based on them that it's time to drop all of the last pandemic protections once and for all, starts talking to other Democrat governors about it amongst themselves. Um, this is per reporting from the New York Times that we quote in that other episode. Uh, then Omicron hits and delays their plans. By a week into February 2022, when Leon is, you know, publishing that piece they all more or less drop their mask mandates uh that were in place uh for new jersey that's just the mask mandate in schools i think that's what osterholm was like talking to leonhard about but the last states only eight of them uh that have statewide mask mandates at that point all drop their mask mandates around then who pops his head in like a fucking punxatani fill right in between the states dropping their mask mandates and the CDC announcing its COVID community level system. Um, February 17th, Ashish Jha appears on the Today Show and says the following, quote, 
Infections are dropping precipitously. Hospital capacity has gotten better. Deaths are going to get much better in the next few weeks. I think it's a pretty reasonable time to pull off the mask mandates, unquote. And then again, I would refer you to COVID year three for a more in-depth look at this particular period in 2022, because I don't want to do too much overlap for people who have already you know, heard that episode. But the takeaway is this spring 2021 CDC basically ended masking. They may have gestured at pulling it back. Uh, but in you know most of the country, it never went back. It just was gone. From that point, there is a huge social and political process of not only normalizing the pandemic, which was already obviously ongoing, but of stigmatizing masking, essentially, on top of that, to the point that by the time that Walensky says in February 2022 that, quote, masking is the scarlet letter of the pandemic, unquote, that's actually basically the exact opinion you'd probably find in any, you know, pretty much any liberal media outlet. Um, Then, as governors, states, and local governments drop the last remaining mask mandates, the CDC swoops in, as we document in COVID year three, to basically rubber stamp their decision with the COVID community level system, um, which has the effect of giving the veneer of science to this overtly political decision to be done with masking. So again, we tell that story in COVID year three. So here I want to focus on the immediate fallout of that aggressive set of moves to sort of uh, normalize anti-masking or stigmatize masking, however you want to talk about it. In the aftermath of that, we touched on this really briefly in COVID year three, but um, let's start with coverage of masking from March, actually. Um, and this I would characterize as sort of like the um, self-help it's okay moment mm. of of uh, masking being dropped. So here's the here uh, Huffington Post. <laughs> here's the Huffington Post, March 4th. Um, how to cope when you're the only one wearing a mask at work. NPR, March 1st, not ready to go without a face mask? One-way masking can still reduce infection risk. NPR again, March 13th, some people aren't ready to stop masking, but it can be tough to go against the grain. (laughs) Um, And into April, especially after the TSA transportation mask mandate is struck down by a judge, here's April 24th on NPR's weekend edition, quote, with less societal masking, how to avoid catching COVID, April 22nd, again, NPR, here's why you might still want to wear masks on public transport. May 20th, 2022, Huffington Post, the mask optional phase of the pandemic is going to be tough for rule followers, which is, uh, and I'll just end with, and I'll just end, um, you know, my, my part of the timeline basically with this, which again overlaps with COVID year three, uh, if you want to hear more about it, May 31st, 2022, David Leonhardt in the New York Times, why masks work, but mandates haven't, unquote. Obviously, we could go all the way up into today, but, you know, this is a really specific story. As I mentioned, we were going like, to skip over yeah. quite a lot. Um, there's, you know, infinitely more things that you could flesh out across these three years that we just really briefly hit. But this is at least sort of, you know, one story of really how it was liberals that killed masking. It's kind of staggering to be on this end of the timeline. Yeah. Yeah. It feels pretty bad. (laughs) Pretty bad. Yeah. But I mean, it's so interesting to be too, like, I don't know, just, you know, would you kind of connect those dots? And, and of course it's not a linear one way trajectory and it's not predestined, right? There is, 
variability in positions and, you know, some ideas pop their head up and then like whack-a-mole kind of get whacked down, but then, you know, later they come back or whatever. But it's interesting to me, actually, how relatively, I mean, you know, it's like, what is the shorthand libs, you know, libs did this, what are we sort of getting at? I mean, part of what really stands out to me is actually the relative narrowness of the of decision makers and their sort of lane, right? I mean, this is like not a shocking thing to say, but just to sort of sit with that and underline it, right? How relatively small the charmed circle of idea, you know, proffers are, you know, who are the pundits, who are the doctors, who are the J.G. Allens, who are the quotables, and then, yeah. you know, the sort of, the sort of way that that atmosphere has to get built and stoked. And then this kind of just kind of like, oops, you know, things like, okay, Omicron happened and that disrupted the plan, but like, then the plan will resume. And just, you know, the, the sowing of seeds obviously goes all the way back to 2020. Um, and it's really interesting to just follow actually how, how kind of narrowly those seeds were able to sprout and grow and kind of remain in this pretty, you know, small kind of arena of who is allowed to influence so-called public opinion or, you know, the reasonable middle or the, you know, scientifically informed liberal position that, you know, then sort of provides the exact kind of both, you know, ammo and alibi that actual decision makers, policymakers, and politicians actually require to implement, you know, what they've decided that they want to do. It's, it really, I, I guess I, I don't, it's funny because I feel like, of course, when you sit down and, and you just sort of so, you know, succinctly and, and really elegantly kind of laid it out for us already, but it's like, I don't remember it. <laughs> I don't remember it that way in part because I feel like I've misremembered it to be um, almost like I've misremembered causality or responsibility to a certain extent because it's actually even more damning for it to be this unambiguous is what I'm trying to get at. You know, I'm just like, okay, well, the grace that I have unconsciously been granting different people or institutions or decision-making processes over time. Yeah. Mm, I guess I, I guess, I guess that was a funny trick um, of my compassion that I'm that, you know, these cold, hard facts are a little bit tempering. So that's a very interesting thing that I feel like I'm going to be sitting with for, for <laughs> a little while over the holiday season. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it just reminds me of this idea that has been used to explain, you know, really horrible things like when um, parents of disabled children uh, subject their children to uh, treatment or therapy, quote unquote, that is violent or torturous, like um, giving electroshock therapy to autistic children, for example. Um, you have all these moments where you sort of talk through like, oh, well, is this, is there like intent there? Is there drive there? Mm -hmm. And like all of that is so irrelevant to actually what's going on. And it's that, you know, there is a kind of way that <laughs> reproduction works and reverberates throughout society where you see this kind of idea of like you can get an endorsement, whether that's this sort of CDC shift of, you know, making that sudden change and, and kicking things to the states that we were saying was sort of sketchier than we had recalled. Um, in hindsight, it looked way sketchier. That that kind of framework, you know, is a, is also a signal. Um, it's this idea of like the state is sort of mm. endorsing or mandating the removal of the mask mandates, even though they're not 
saying that. They're they're really mm-hmm. saying, you know, it's up for localities to decide and we want this flex approach. But like what is implied in saying that is the CDC endorses the removal of, of mask mandates. And so there's this idea in disability studies to sort of talk about these moments where people do things that hurt people that they love and that like mm-hmm. contribute to bad health outcomes in you know, for reasons that are sometimes not explainable, right? Like, and I think we've spent a lot of time, like a lot of people have spent a lot of time, like really trying to explain the behavior that they've been experiencing from other people this year or from, you know, leaders. But part of it is like this idea of like when the state endorses or sometimes even mandates these processes of of death making, people who attribute moral authority to something like the CDC or to the Biden administration, they're going to approve of it too, Mm -hmm. right? Like, And similarly, when the kind of level of severity is signaled to be not something that's under the CDC's purview anymore and that this kind of mask mandate situation becomes framed within individual choice and steps into the the nudge arena, which is the kind of place of extractive abandonment really thriving in, in neoliberal health capitalism, it's it's a perfect storm. And it's no surprise that we've seen this kind of theme of cruel optimism really play out, which is the the idea with cruel optimism isn't just that it's cruel optimism. It's that the very thing that you desire is getting in the way of flourishing mm-hmm. is what Berlant framed it as. So all these motherfuckers who want to quote unquote reopen the economy. I'm just like thinking back to that. What was it? A Goldman Sachs thing? Like mm-hmm. masks? Yep. yep. Yeah. <laughs> Improve we'll GDP? Save 5%, like we'll increase GDP by 5%. Everyone's like, why line. don't people want to work? Quiet quitting, long social distancing, <laughs> fear of normal, addicted to lockdown. No, motherfuckers are sick. Like we're hey, forcing a, 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 yeah, a but there's an economy for novel, you know, one weird tricks. To True. understand the economy or oh, to understand yeah. the I world. Mean, the punditry of this all. I mean, I know that's <laughs> like, I feel like there is this more impersonal, you know, aspect to it too, where it's just like the desperate need to have like something weird to say just because, and like the ability to zoom in and out, right? Like that, those, those, you know, two surgical masks doesn't equal one and 95, like that kind of weirdo logic, like that's pundit logic, right? Where it's just like, let me reason from my personal experience. And it just, you know, eventually, I think that though, to get back to the lib thing is like so beautifully married. I think, you know, what I mean to say is like, I think there's a, there's a sort of smugness about, or a kind of like snarkiness about the sort of pundit industrial hot take complex world that we live in as if that's something that only irrational right wing people do and only grifters <laughs> do and only people selling actual irrational policy. But it's actually tailor made for liberalism <laughs> because mm-hmm. it means yeah. that like the feeling of authority and self-satisfaction you get from using the evidence of your everyday life and extrapolating it as if it is a data set to run the world, right? That's why we get all of these, like, well, I go to brunch in my redlined, historically redlined neighborhood and I feel perfectly (laughs) fine and I want to see this face smiling back to me of my server who, you know, who, you know, who doesn't live in the same neighborhood. It's just like, that is really, I think, kind of the, the sort of vehicle here, right? That is just like never ending all the, and it just, 
the veneer, that liberal sentimentality gives such a veneer to it that like, of course, I don't like the right wing extremist version of it either. But I just, I just do not like the smug condescension of the liberal version either. And it's really kind of staggering, you know, just like you're saying, be to sort of see it set up this way and watch it kind of unfold Um you know, like, uh, yeah, just like knowing, I, you know, I was about to say knowing the ending in advance, but of course it's not an ending because we we're, still still, don't, yeah. we're still living through it. Yeah. That actually, I'm glad that you uh, said that and, and the, the rest of the statement too, because this, you know, makes me think of, um, I mean, one of the reasons that I wanted to run through this is as I kind of mentioned from the top is like to kind of, uh, to use a, you know, phrase I referred to earlier to kind of like unboil the frog here or something. Mm. Um, cause in COVID year three, we kind of had this conversation towards the end that was like, I would summarize it as saying like, we are simultaneously living in COVID as an ongoing event, but also in COVID as its own aftermath. Mm-hmm. If that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Um, it's like two simultaneous sociological and political experiences. And I think that the, the sort of, you know, purpose of, of walking through this is like, you know, in so many words, I think just because, you know, just because this happened, just because this process happened, doesn't mean that it can't be worked against or unmade. And I think as part of that, like our demands have to be big and not just on masking, obviously on all these other litany of things that we've talked about. I mean, that's why, again, I, not to sound like I'm, you know, being the fucking same drum over and over again, but like, that's why both in this project, um, and like in our, our book, health communism, you know, B and I are like, look, we haven't learned the lessons. You know, we, we haven't learned anything from COVID all the stuff that has happened during COVID, like can be explained through an understanding of our political economy of health. We need to fucking break that. We need to fucking break capitalism. And I know that like a lot of the liberals that I mentioned who do care about COVID, I know they're not necessarily going to come along with us on that, but they should certainly understand that they can make much more aggressive demands on the state. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know what I they mean? They should feel confident doing that. You know, I, I get feeling on the back foot because you've been beaten down and you've compromised and you've compromised through kind of like the latter part of this recording. I've been really thinking about, you know, I have sort of my explanation for why the the COVID response has gone the way that it has, particularly under Biden. I think it's an explanation that's probably shared by the other people on this recording and other listeners of this <laughs> podcast, right? Which is that, you know, because of the political economy of capitalism in the United States, commercial interests, economic interests had to be prioritized over public health and constitutively, you know, as part of the function of the economy, people had to be exposed to like very high levels of COVID. But I've been, you know, I've been thinking towards the end of this recording about how masking is kind of the one thing that doesn't really quite fit that explanation. And I don't think that like, I don't think, for example, what we were talking about earlier, like the collapsing of, you know, masking rhetorically with NPIs like lockdowns, you know, or like shutdowns. I don't think that totally explains it either. Yeah. And I'm trying to think about what does explain it. And so this is just me completely speculating. But I think, you know, there are kind of like profound ways that the pandemic and all of the disruptions that have come with it have sort of reformulated the social contract. 
And the instance of masking, right, and liberals basically killing masking strikes me after having this conversation, you know, speaking, Jules, like you mentioned, this like liberal sentimentality. This is sort of liberal sentimentality. But I think what it really is, is, you know, sort of sort of mainstream liberalism, whether, you know, doing this for some sort of self-directed reason, whether it's because they're running cover for for the Biden administration and they're, you know, co-partisans, I have no idea. But I think that the purpose of this masking, you know, all of this stuff that has happened with masking and all this discourse about it is to build the basis for a new social contract that is based in the fantasy of consent to what's happening, Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, like with the pandemic and politically and this like fantasy of control when obviously, you know, what's, what's really happened is like so completely unacceptable, right? Like just, just like your book says the pandemic made everyone into surplus. You know what I mean? Like everyone, everyone, everyone contains or everyone embodies like the potential to be surplus, <laughs> you know, like I think it's kind of like a, like a dialectical relationship, you know, like work capable, healthy person versus, you know, sick, um, you know, s- member of the, of the surplus class. Um, yeah. But I think that's what has like, that's what's really happened. And that's horrifying. And that can't be, you know what I mean? That just, that can't be the fantasy of, liberal governance of like being rescued from Trump, whatever. So I feel like a lot of this masking discourse, yeah, it's, it's a way it's how like liberalism is constructing the fantasy and the illusion that we've all consented to this, this position we've been forced into um, politically and economically when I don't think that's the case. Yeah. Yeah. I think in terms of, you know, understanding how this kind of dichotomy between like vulnerable people and non-vulnerable people has even come to be like relevant in the context of the pandemic too. I think masking is a really important area to be looking at, but I I think the fact of the matter is, is that everyone was already, (laughs) everybody was kind of already in this proximal relationship to surplus already prior to COVID COVID like increased some of the variables that yeah sped up temporally speaking like the kind of timeline for a lot of people but it's more that it's a novel concentration of sickness in a way that reminds me of this when I was prepping for this episode I kept thinking of this quote from the beginning of a book about the plague from the guy who came up with the like rise of the West theory, Uh, William Hardy McNeil. He's like a historian. He's like a U Chicago historian. I think I have his book, Plagues and Peoples. Yes, Plagues and Peoples. And he's talking about, you know, how sort of like God, science and progress sort of fits into like civilization in this opening of his book plagues and peoples and he says epidemic disease runs counter to the effort to make the past intelligible and he's talking about like the black plague being kind of something that like historians are like uncomfortable explaining because it it breaks the theory of sort of linear progress that drives 
a lot of the kind of liberal perspective and the the perspective on enlightenment Linear progress towards the renaissance yeah exactly yeah. yeah and so you have this kind of i think connection also of masks being a kind of low tech intervention that couldn't possibly right that couldn't possibly be as effective as something like ventilation upgrades and hvac as something like you know discussing the different typologies and qualities of masking and i think mrna for people like yeah like i think for people like monica gandhi i think for people like Vinay Prasad, I mean, we talked about this a little bit, the, the way that precision medicine, I think, factors into his pandemic av- advocacy, this kind of idea mm-hmm. of every patient, we can know exactly what type of cancer it is and make them a drug just for them, which, you know, if you coming at that from a rare disease perspective, you're like, wow, like, couldn't possibly use that on my disease population, though, right? But, you know, like the... Yeah. I think that part of it is that like people like Monica Gandhi, like they can't accept that in this kind of technological perspective and like age that we live in, right? That like something so simple could fix what they can't fix, right? Like, and I think that there's a there's a kind of dogmatic pressure right now to really kind of move on from the Trump era and leave COVID behind with it. Mm-hmm. But I think you know, this process of consent, this process of restricting the imaginary of what life is going to visually be like after Trump, right? Like getting rid of masking was such a visual culture issue more than anything else. And and that's why I kept bringing up my own experience of blindness, because there's this idea of like, you know, blind people not feeling empathy or even experiencing the world as full people because we can't see facial expressions and an emotion on the face or whatever like as if i can't hear in your voice where you're coming from when mm-hmm. you speak um you know we record this podcast remotely we're not in the same room we might sound like we're in the same room but i feel like i can hear everything that's on your face abby and jules <laughs> when you're speaking you know and having been both a sighted person and a blind person in my life there is no difference in my social interactions that went from, you know, being able to see people's mouths and not being able to see people's mouths. Nothing changed, you know? And and I think there's this real fucking attachment, though, to getting rid of this visual signifier, that that is surely the way out of it, is just if we could only not be reminded of it. And, and that's why I think the disability perspective that, like, you know, I bring to this show not through my lived experience as a disabled person, but through like the disability studies work that I've done has been really telling because the disability studies is really just about looking at the ways that we've sort of hidden certain specific populations and why and the stories that we tell to perpetuate hiding, you know, populations for whatever reason. But it's back to this kind of idea of like what a liberal nation is, which is the, a body of healthy people, a healthy body politic, and this kind of imaginary of being able to have through little nudges, not through totalitarian mandates, but through gentle nudges and tricking people into doing things for their own better health and better benefit, we can build a perfect healthy body politic. And like nobody is a healthy person under capitalism. Right. So it's like we were all relative to surplus all along. The pandemic has made that more visible because of the 
the temporal aspect, but the fundamental relationship that every person has to surplus is defined by liberalism and by liberal capitalism more than it's defined by the relationship of the worker to the non-worker or the disabled person to the non-disabled person. And, and so I think it's, you know, it's, it's really interesting to see how the, you know, the, the sort of starting point of being like, well, we want to get back to normal, presumably being like a, a period of economic growth where we don't think about problems you know, the, the, the one thing that actually could probably facilitate that if implemented <laughs> yep. at a mass scale is masking, right? Like, this is textbook cruel optimism. Yeah. And it's really tragic to watch it play out. And, like, it really makes me wonder, like, what Lauren would be saying, like, if they were here still. But I'm kind of glad that they're not, that they don't have to watch this. But it, I also feel like this gives me so much more, like, hope and and power just like over my own perception of how mm -hmm. the pandemic has gone. I've really, you know, sort of rewritten um, some of the ways that I look back on, on events that I've just thought of. I mean, I'm just thinking back to the conversation, Jules, you and I had in um, March that became a piece in New Inquiry in, in June where you said, I feel a lot of political depression in our ranks. It might manifest as a kind of cynicism, burnout, resentment, or feeling done with things, feeling overwhelmed, feeling hopeless, feeling powerless. It can come from feeling subject to right-wing, authoritarian, death-spiral politics, reveling in unreason, sure. But it can also come from realizing that the limit of the liberal democratic response is to minimize or ignore the real danger of that libidinally invested, destructive death-spiral for a fantasy of enlightened civility. Mm. In our moment, the two loudest speaking positions are egregious and excruciating, but they are complementary in their antagonism. One burns our homes down and the other tells us not to protest in front of the ruling classes' houses. Yeah. You called the vibe of the year like quite early. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a terrifying um, thing to have done. But no, I agree with you. And I think you put it so elegantly in that kind of, I, I I feel. I was just gonna say I, I don't want to follow that. No no no. <laughs> I, there's, I have nothing to add to that. I, I, not to myself, to what you said, B. But um, you know, I just think there's something there's something clarifying and grounding, actually, and then ultimately galvanizing to me about understanding. Um, yeah, understanding how it is that we got into the situation in which we are in today, and in fact, to see it that much more clearly. Um, yeah, it does not depress me. There was a lot of depressing shit along the way and a lot of the, the bits and pieces that we tucked into um, in this conversation, but I don't, I don't actually really don't feel depressed by the takeaway. I feel kind of like, uh, you know, as I often do, uh, you know, in, in death panel company, a renewed clarity of purpose, but also <laughs> relief to, to get to, to take that on, um, you know, together and not just, you know, by myself. Before we end, I just want to say, um, I hope for people who've gotten to the end of this and who maybe also like listen to the entirety of COVID year three, I know that this is like five hours of spoken content at this point. <laughs> I do hope that like we've been saying, I know that I said this at the end of COVID year three, but you know, I feel very, as, as you know, you all are saying, basically I feel much more, I, I feel resolute after doing this i feel you know galvanized i think 
in part because of having to go back through this process of reflection. Um, I hope that some of that has also carried over to you. I really genuinely hope that to, I'm talking to you like the listener right now. Um, I do hope that that has carried over the process of going through this. I know I said, I like practically despaired. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice. I kind of practically fucking despaired at the end of COVID year three about how much the process of doing this felt like it took, um, for me. Cause I really, I spearheaded a lot of the, the research on this, obviously, as I've kind of fucking monopolized the conversation <laughs> today. No. Um, but, um, you know, it, it's interesting because just when I sat down to do this, I mentioned that I like cleaved these into two at some point, right. That like, we just realized, Oh, there's so much that this has to be two conversations. I, I hope it earned that. But also more importantly, I think what's almost terrifying to me is that when I, when I did that about a day later, I then sat down with my notes and I said to myself, well, fuck, are these actually two things? Like, is this just going to be so much overlap? And even I think in COVID year three, I say so many things about, oh, there's going to be, we'll talk about much more, right, in like, in the masking episode. And then no, actually, like most of it, we just stuck in 2021 because there's just so much. And so much of the, so many important events and so much important discourse, like, that again, informs the discussion in COVID year three as much as COVID year three informed this conversation, you know, um, having as a through line. So, yeah, so I I I hope that this helped you the way that I feel like it helped at least a little bit of the way that I feel like it really helped me kind of understand even further this thing that I've been living that we've been all of us living through doing this show. Um and as part of that, I want to I know we did this at the end of Cover 3 too, but I want to thank everybody. Um yeah. When we say that this show doesn't happen without you, it's true. Um, literally there's no way that I would have the time to do the stuff that I just did to put these two fucking episodes together. It, it would be impossible without each and every one of you who listens, who like sends us messages about it, who like, you know, even just like sometimes just seeing stuff that people like say about the show or they just like tweet like oh, I was like thinking about this when I was listening to the latest death, death panel that like I I love seeing that like it keeps us going and also and also like obviously your support gives us the time to do it so again thank you you know the one thing that I will say is if so if you're listening to this this is going to be um you know our Monday patron episode I don't know when this one will be unlocked exactly, but you can look forward to COVID year three being unlocked on Thursday uh, in the mm-hmm. main feed. That is going to be our public episode. Um, it's the end of the year. And as you can hear, I'm sure in my voice and certainly in B's, um, <laughs> we're still recovering from COVID. So um, there will be uh, there are, you know, going to be new episodes, especially in the patron feed. But as we kind of like cap out the year, there are going to be like a couple of unlocks, including covid year three um so just you know be advised basically we're resting we just did this huge like drop <laughs> drop of like hours and hours of content i mean like the episode with karen tawny that we released just last thursday was um an hour and 40 minutes although fun fact that was actually recorded before we got sick that's why b sounds normal yes um <laughs> that and was the, i was, that was so on sick the precipice. <laughs> i was unable to edit it uh 
even though like so that's why we had uh that's why we like had that unlock and we just i kept that in the can i actually realized there's something wrong talking to uh amy kapchinski about covid vaccines i was right. like my if throat heard, does not feel okay i mean if you if you've heard the interview with amy kapchinski and it sounds like b is a little loopy yeah she was basically right after that she tested positive for covid and then we were out for yeah. at least a week and we're still recovering anyway i'm going on way too long at this point <laughs> All I wanted to say is, again, thank you. Your support means the world to us. And we hope that this can help something. At least feel less alone. Yeah. Even if it's just helping the vibes. <laughs> I guess. Because, well, clearly vibes are quite crucial, aren't they? We as do we, live as in a very, shown. yeah. I also want to say to Abby and Jules, thank you so much for joining the panel. It's been wonderful. We've only had a couple months and things have been really busy with the book coming out. But um, it's not like you both did not contribute a tremendous amount to this project before you were official (laughs) members, as we've sort of shown in this episode also. So I just really appreciate the, you know, the fact that we've got you both on the team. Oh, well, it is an honor and a privilege, you know, trust the... The, the good feelings go in both directions. I feel very grateful. Yeah, that's very well said. I feel the same. I feel very grateful to get to work on this project with you all and to have, I don't know, something of a platform or a venue to make these types of arguments. Um, mm-hmm. Really, it's really special. So thanks. So before any of us ugly cry, <laughs> I think we'll leave it there. <laughs> Patrons, Thank you so much for supporting the show. We could not do any of this without you. If you're listening to this and you're not a patron, support the show at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod and get access to our second weekly bonus episode and entire back catalog of bonus episodes. And as always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.